this chick in some work, but I finally have them. There's rumors, Amanda, that some of them have abilities. Oh, yeah. I have seen things. Maybe Superman was some kind of beacon for them to creep back from the shadows. This is now playing's DC Movie Universe Retrospective Series. The greatest gladiator match in the history of the world. Part of the now playing DC Comic Movie Series. This means something. It's all some people have. It's all that gives them hope. Hosted by Arnie. I'm getting slow in my old age, Alfred. Even you got too old to die young. Stuart. Ow! Wow! That is a good grip. You should not pick a fight with this person. And Jacob. It's time you learn what it means to be a man. At NowPlayingPodcast.com, we will be reviewing all the DC Universe movies featuring Superman. I grew up in Kansas, General. About as American as it gets. Batman. We just have a bad history with freaks dressed like clowns. Wonder Woman. Oh, I don't think you've ever known a woman like me. Suicide Squad. What the hell's wrong with you people? We're bad guys. It's what we do. And Justice League. Son of Krypton versus Bat of Gotham. This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Are you effing stupid? Listener discretion is advised. Let's go save the world. Today, we're discussing Man of Steel, starring Henry Cavell, Amy Adams, Michael Shannon, Diane Lane, Kevin Costner, Lawrence Fishburne, Russell Crowe, and directed by Zack Snyder. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, but you can call me a spin doctor because I got a pocket full of kryptonite. Super steward in L.A. And this is your host of Steel, Jacob. And we're finally here. Man of Steel, it's been a long time coming. We had interruptions with Iron Man and Star Trek. So it feels like I've been living on Krypton for most of 2013. Yes, I feel like I've been living on Krypton as its core is beginning to collapse. It's getting shaky, you know. I think we talked about this at the end of the last show. With this production crew, especially Zack Snyder, there was a lot of anticipation for me. You know, it's Superman. It's this franchise. Never cared about the comic that much or the character, but the movie version, the Christopher Reeve childhood favorite, it's invested me. And now there was a lot of dread, I'll admit, going into this, but I was anticipating this. I was excited to see what this take was going to be. I've said before that I've been surprised at how similar the Superman franchise has been with Batman. You start with a campy TV movie tie-in. You have two first good iterations followed by two really bad iterations. You have some offshoots, the female spinoff, Catwoman or Supergirl, whatever you want to call it. But it all ended with Nolan. And I'm glad that we're finally getting to a Nolan-verse Superhero. I think he did a phenomenal job, barring that last Dark Knight. The first two were extremely great movies, and I'm hoping that his influence, he's not director this time, but I'm hoping that his spirit and the ideas that he put forth are really going to give us a Superman movie worthy of Dark Knight. Well, a couple of things to that, because... I've been on Facebook and on these previous shows saying that I was a little nervous with Zack Snyder at the helm. If you donated last spring or picked up one of our still available DVD-ROM sets, you heard us talk about his first film, Dawn of the Dead, and 
I felt that one was pretty good. You loved it. You need to be honest here. You loved his Dawn of the Dead. That you are now a hater of Zack Snyder is a little weird to me. Because more than Jacob and I, you were really on board with Dawn of the Dead, 2004. And I loved it so much that I went and saw 300, a Sandals movie I would never have any interest in if it wasn't for him. And I saw Watchmen, and I saw Sucker Punch. Let's just cut it off there, yes. Yeah. It's, just, it's getting worse as we go along. Just like his oeuvre, getting worse as it goes along. And the one thing that people who agree with me on that said is, Oh, Nolan, Nolan's involved, Nolan will rein him in, Nolan's gonna do it. Well, it has come out. Nolan was working with Goyer, our good friend Goyer from Blade, and Nick Fury, and Ghost Rider. On the Dark Knight films, and Goyer said, I've got an idea for Superman. Nolan pitched it to the Warners, and Warner's like, well, you've given us lots of money. We're going to do whatever you say, Nolan. And Nolan and Goyer worked on a script. But as soon as Zack Snyder was brought on as director, Nolan, the way it was phrased was, chose to hand over all creative control over to Snyder and focus on Dark Knight Rises and his follow-up film. Right. Interstellar. I can't wait to get to that one. I, I'm more excited about that than Man of Steel. I'll be honest with you. I'm a big Christopher Nolan fan, but that he even touched this project, I think, means something. I hear what you're saying. It is not a Christopher Nolan movie, and I am not going to expect that it is. But I do think fingerprints are here. I do feel like influences here. If nothing else, they are wanting to emulate the success of his Dark Knight franchise. This is obviously a rethink. This is not just another Superman movie, and it's not a slavish recreation of the Donnerverse. This is a way about rethinking the entire character so that he can work in a Nolan realistic kind of way, or as close to that as, you know, you can get with a alien. And Goyer's come out very clearly and said, this is not in the Nolanverse. This is not the same world where we saw Batman battle the Joker. When they go to Justice League territory, which is where the plan when developing this was, was a trilogy, the third part of which is Justice League. It's a brand new Batman with no relation to Nolan's Batman. This is a new DC universe. Like they tried with Green Lantern. Yeah, and I'm obviously not a fan of that one. Uh, but go ahead and preview my thoughts. This is better than Green Lantern. <laughs> not saying a whole lot, but yes, I think we could hopefully all agree to that. No comment. I guess we'll have to wait to the end of the show then. <laughs> hey, I recommended Green Lantern. I know. <laughs> I know. That's why your no comment speaks volumes already. <laughs> really? I feel like, man, every time we get to the theatrical release, I always get petrified, guys. I'll be honest with you. Walking into this movie theater, I'm like, I don't know if I can take another marginal movie. We have had so many this year of walking in and coming out and going, I'm going to have to go take a poop on this franchise that we've been talking up for, you know, now eight weeks, and now I'm going to have to take a poop on it. I had anxiety going into Man of Steel. I'm like, oh, please, God, don't let me dislike it, because no one wants to hear that again. I've been through it with Star Trek. I've been through it with Iron Man. I don't even want to go back to Die Hard or Texas Chainsaw, but it's been a rough one. With the exception of Evil Dead, I got to say, every time I've been to the theater for now playing this year, it's gone badly. So yeah, it's starting to become a phobia now. I'll agree that I kind of had the same thing, but I'll say that with Snyder at the helm, my expectations were low. It was not going to take a lot to impress me. Coherence would be nice. Sucker Punch didn't have that. But I was a little nervous, too. A reboot. I'd heard some rumors about DNA manipulation and a new origin story. I wasn't sure what I would think of it or how much I could jive with it. 
Oh, I heard all kinds of rumors. I try to go into this pretty spoiler-free. You know, I saw a few of the trailers. I didn't read any reviews before going into this. Didn't read a whole lot. You know, you'd see things here and there. I read comic books. I visit comic book sites. It's impossible to not catch a few things. I mean, I remember reading things like, oh, we're not going to see the destruction of Krypton. Krypton's still going to be around at the end of this film. And there's things making me clench up, just wondering what are they going to do with this film? And look, if you've listened to that Dawn of the Dead review, you know my thoughts of Snyder. And that was my biggest concern going in here. I'm happy to say here's a preview. I think Snyder's a non-entity for me in this film, at least. Whatever is good or bad, it's not Snyder here. Oh, I disagree. I think his fingerprint is all over the negative. (laughs) This is a Snyder film. What that means, we'll talk about. I'll just go ahead and weigh on the Snyder thing, since I feel like this is a referendum on his ability to direct a movie now. I think that he is yet to prove to be a great filmmaker. I also haven't seen anything where I feel like what he has done has ruined the property. Which is to say that if I didn't like one of the movies, it was because I didn't like the source material it was based on. Well, I'll agree with you, Jacob. Despite the rumors I'd heard, I went in pretty spoiler-free because I actually got to see this Thursday night thanks to Walmart? Yes, I saw this every time I went to Walmart. They had the big posters up there to get your tickets for an early viewing. I had no idea this was happening. I like to see the Thursday night shows if they have them. And lately, and I honestly think that the Dark Knight Rises shooting may have had something to do with this. The first showings have been usually at 7 or 9 o'clock on Thursday. But for Man of Steel, they were really holding tight to the 12.01. I go to Walmart for a completely unrelated reason. And I hear on the overhead, come get your Man of Steel tickets Thursday at 7 for $5. I'm like, wait. Thursday, 7 p.m., and a third the price of normal ticket, sold. So I got to see it before most people, and I got to see a lot of behind-the-scenes footage where Zack Snyder and Henry Cavell looked at me and went, thank you for shopping at Walmart, and forced a smile onto their face. (laughs) Yeah, this is definitely a commercially tied to Superman property. It had to be. I mean, this was kind of risky after they tried and failed to reboot it last time. I'm sure some companies may have not wanted to put their name with Superman. He isn't a star yet. I am really curious to see, even more than whether it's going to be a good movie or not, can they actually build a Superman that will have a sequel? Have they started a trilogy here, or is this just another failed start like Steel and Superman Returns? Well, I don't think there was much worry because I, according to what I've read, and it's, you know, some of those vague people say kind of sources, this movie had made a hundred and sixty million in product placement before it ever made it into a theater. Ah, all right. So at a $230 million price tag, yeah, there's a lot of advertising costs too, but they'd almost broken even on production budget just thanks to IHOP, 7-Eleven, Sears, and Walmart. Well, I just saw it in the traditional IMAX 3D version. No fancy Walmart screening for me, I guess. But I actually saw it on a Saturday morning. Typically, I go to the midnight crowds, but I didn't feel like I needed to stay up late for it. And I kind of have just been very distant from all of the hype of this movie. I literally went in extremely cold. I knew that it would have Superman. I knew the actors that were involved in the director, but I couldn't have told you what the plot was. I think I had heard that there was no kryptonite. And that was about it. Arnie, you had hinted that there was going to be radical shifts and a lot of things that I'd never seen before. And I was hoping for that, but I had no idea what lay ahead of when I walked into my screening. But it was packed. I mean, it's not an empty seat in the house. Even Saturday at 10 in the morning, a lot of people in L.A. were lining up for soups. 
And I was traveling across the country that Friday. I was trying to get back home and with airplane delays, I'd been traveling for work. But I wanted to see this more because I do visit those comic book websites and I wanted to be as spoiler free as possible. So I had flown all day. I'm like, I'm still going to go see this movie. I I went to the last showing on Friday night, sold out theater, saw it in 2D. You guys, I think, saw it in 3D. You could discuss it, but I'm glad I saw it in 2D. Sold out theater, excited crowd, a lot of cheering going on. Well, you mentioned the 3D. Walmart, like everything, is a little bit stripped down, a little bit no frills, a little bit 2D. (laughs) You wanted the cheap ticket, you get a cheap performance. So the first time I saw this, it was in 2D. I did go to a Father's Day matinee and saw it in 3D so I could speak to the 3D. But this is one that was filmed in 2D, another post-conversion job. But they really forced it down your throats. This movie opened in over 4,200 theaters. Only 850 of them were 2D. So I had trouble finding 2D showings that weren't Walmart sponsored. I will say the 2D showing that I saw, there was only about four at the theater compared to like the 12 3D showings they had going on. And if you opt for IMAX, you're getting 3D. And I just like a big screen. I like the IMAX grandeur. I don't want this 3D. And every time I go to IMAX 3D, I feel like, yeah, I'm seeing this post-conversion that is non-existent. If this movie is in 3D, I saw nothing coming at me off the screen here. It was just darker. It was like watching a movie with sunglasses on is what it felt like. Yeah, I agree. I knew I was wearing glasses. I didn't know I was looking at 3D at any point in this film. Yeah, Nolan never used 3D. This is my go-to for this kind of series. If we're entering the Nolan versus superhero world, then I kind of wish they had done what he did and said... F you to this 3D nonsense. It's this post-conversion. It's just no good. Well, one thing they did copy from Christopher Nolan is the title here. It's not Superman, just like Batman wasn't Batman. He was the Dark Knight. Here is the Man of Steel. Yeah, they want to rebrand this. This doesn't want to just be Superman 5 or a continuation of what Singer. They want you to make no mistake. This is a Superman movie unlike any we've gotten before, purportedly. But in order to know that, I guess we got to hear the plot. Arnie? On planet Krypton, natural birth is illegal. They use genetic modification as population control, and each person is born into a role, be it leader, worker, scientist, and so on. But scientific elder Jor-El sees Krypton's doom as they mine the planet's core for energy. And so he and his wife Lara secretly break the law, and Lara gives birth to the first natural-born son in centuries, Kal-El. But Jor-El's plan is larger. He steals the Codex, a device that contains the DNA for all future Kryptonians, and embeds it in his son's cells. So wherever Cal goes, the future of Krypton goes with him. The betrayal earns Jor-El death at the blade of General Zod, the Kryptonian military leader who staged an insurrection against the ineffectual ruling council of the planet. But Zod cannot stop Kal-El's ship from escaping, and shortly thereafter, Zod and his followers are captured by the Kryptonian authorities and sentenced to an eternity in the Phantom Zone. Which turns out to be a blessing, as all Kryptonians die when their planet core implodes, but Zod and his followers are safe in space. And speaking of safe, Kal-El's ship flies to Earth, where he is found by kindly Kansas farmers Jonathan and Martha Kent, who raised the boy as Clark, keeping his extraterrestrial origin secret. Clark is raised to keep his powers a secret, as his parents fear what people will do if they find out an alien is living among them. Clark is scolded when he saves a bus of drowning children, and during a tornado, Clark is told to stay put while his father is sucked into the cyclone, Jonathan putting Clark's secret above even his own life. 
Eventually, Clark leaves home and becomes a transient, basically living like David Banner in the Hulk TV series. He'd go town to town till trouble comes and he has to use his powers. Then he moves on to keep his identity a secret. And much like that Hulk TV series, he starts getting followed by investigative reporter Lois Lane. She had gone to the Arctic because of a found spaceship that was buried under the ice for 20,000 years, and Clark had gone up there to see if it was from his people. He ventures into the ship and is followed by Lois, and Clark has to reveal himself and his powers when the ship's defenses attack the reporter, and he leaves her in the Arctic and flies the ship away. On the ship, he confers with a hologram of his father, who tells Clark his true name and the history of his people, and also the history of General Zod. Lois uses her reporter skills to track down the super being who saved her life and finally finds Clark in Smallville. But when Clark shares his fear of what people will do to him, Lois decides not to run with the story and reveal Clark's identity. But it quickly becomes a moot point. The found spaceship sent a distress signal, which was received by General Zod. When Krypton exploded, Zod was released from the Phantom Zone, and so he and his people come to retrieve the Codex. Zod plans to terraform Earth, killing all the humans, but creating a new planet for Kryptonians. Using the Codex in Clark's cells and a fetus farm on the found spaceship, they can create a new Krypton. Clark is given up to Zod by our military, but when Zod's genocidal plan come to light, the military and Superman team up to stop the general. So there's lots of fights, and Superman goes to the Indian Ocean to stop a terraforming machine, and the military takes out Zod's ship in Metropolis. In explosion after explosion, Zod's army falls until it's left to Zod and Cal. But Zod has now learned to use the superpowers given to him by Earth's atmosphere and sun, so it's super versus super. With the Kryptonian fetuses destroyed, Zod's plan is one of wanton destruction, and to save the life of a few Earthlings, Clark is forced to break the General's neck, killing him. With the extraterrestrial threat extinguished, the military tries to spy on Superman, but Superman says he'll fight for America, but on his own terms. And to stay in the thick of things, Clark takes a job as a reporter with the Daily Planet, working with confidant Lois Lane, who welcomes him to the planet as credits roll. There's a lot in there. There's a lot of world building, a lot of mythology. It's honestly, to some degree, a dense movie. Yeah, I'll say I don't think it takes all the same beats as that first Christopher Reeve Superman film, but... Going for this huge sci-fi epic, they go out to do the same thing in this film. They want that epic feel. They're going to tell you a lot of story here. That's the right impulse. They're reintroducing the character for a generation that may not have gone back and watched those old movies. They might have seen Brandon Routh, but my guess is that anybody under the age of 30 didn't enjoy that movie anyway. Moreover, but they, they had <laughs> a few, well, me included. <laughs> Stuart did. Yeah, I, I, I think there was about four of us on Facebook. <laughs> I kind of came into this, though, with the Donner film heavily on my mind. I mean, it felt like it was a given. We were going to start on Krypton, see Krypton's destruction, see Kal-El sent off into space, see Kal-El in Smallville. I'd seen the trailers. I knew that there were scenes of Teen Clark and Little Boy Clark, and then see him as an adult. And I kind of had this heavy sigh of, all right, let's see it again. And I was a little bit taken aback by how they started it. Krypton, it just shocked me. I'm so used to seeing it as the Spartan crystal world that I was not expecting it to be this lush world with these giant buildings and you didn't expect Pandora from Avatar? Hey, come on. Yeah, this is a fantasy world straight out of Avatar or Star Wars, for that matter. This is something you'd see on the cover of a Yes album. I was definitely <laughs> thinking Star Wars. I was actually thinking of the planet Utapau from 
episode three, where Obi-Wan rides this giant lizard beast. Well, here we have Jor-El riding a flying lizard beast. And there's a giant war going on. Well, there's a giant war going on on Utapau, especially with an ineffectual ruling council. I'm like, oh, great. We're even bringing in the Senate scenes from the prequels. Yeah, I don't feel like a lot is that different. You kind of prepared me, Arnie, for something to be a radical shift. I think nuances were taken. I think the story that's told is the same Superman story that was told back in 1978. It's here. And most of the major beats are here. The difference is Krypton's not an ice disco. Now it's Avatar world. I mean, if it's connected to anything from the Superman realm I've seen before, it kind of looks like Supergirl's world, you know, with with the butterflies and all of that. It, it's kind of got a little bit of that, but with a much higher budget, you know, a lot more advancement, obviously, with CGI technology. Yeah, I did like that they updated this. It's not all crystals. Now they have, what, these little USB keys. I like a lot of the aesthetics here. They went for something different. It pretty much worked for me when we were on Krypton here. This is supposed to be an advanced race scientifically. They've got the ships. It feels advanced with these living computers that kind of morph, and I'm going with this at this point. It just took me a little while to get used to it. And Stuart, the things I'd prepared you for, the one thing that I'd read in an Entertainment Weekly summer preview movie special was about DNA alteration and that Kryptonians were now all genetically manipulated and that Clark was the first natural born birth in centuries. And this was a different take on Krypton than I'd ever even imagined. And the way I read it, I was thinking like something like THX 1138. Well, yeah, let's talk about this. They need to give a reason, and I don't think Donner had a great reason as to why the Council didn't act fast enough to protect its people from imminent destruction. And I'm glad that they're going to give more lip service to the fall of this great empire. I'm not sure I understand it. Can we just sort of walk through everything that they've done here? This is a species that has flourished, like the Roman Empire. It has expanded to all sorts of planets, including Earth. For centuries and centuries and centuries, it's done very, very well. And now it has collapsed to all living on Krypton. Why is that? They don't really give a good explanation. It's basically blamed on politics and the ruler at the time. At a point centuries ago, they were expansionist and going to all these different planets and settling new worlds, which is what they needed to do. But then... Political parties shifted and they're like, no, we're going to cut off all of our outposts and let all the people die, apparently violently. <laughs> Did they just let them die? Did they not find sustainable environments to live in? Later on, we'll see Zod. He went planet hopping. He found like these Kryptonians as skeletons in their spacesuits on these dead planets. I really wonder if they're setting up some things here for the sequel. It's not as overt as, like, Amazing Spider-Man did, where everything hinges on the sequel. But here, I'm wondering if, Jacob, you read the comics, but could it be, like, Brainiac went colony to colony and was wiping out the Kryptonians, and he'll show up in part two? Yeah, I mean, I guess you could do something like that if they want to bring Brainiac into it. Or you could just have more Kryptonians show up that were on Venus or something. Don't think I'm not thinking that Kara and her butterfly is somewhere on a colony. Argo City is out there. Or is it in there? <laughs> yeah, I think that leaves a door open for a sequel, that there could be some Kryptonians that did survive, but none we know of. And so they just stayed home, and I see some perhaps commentary on American society with gridlock in Congress and a power-hungry people who don't have enough natural resources to sustain their electronic use. 
And so they mine the planet core. Yeah, I did see the radical green agenda of what they're saying about the Kryptonians. It is not the red sun that is going to explode and destroy Krypton. They have mined their core for energy. They've depleted their resources and they're destroyed themselves because I guess they couldn't find a green energy to live on. Yeah, they fracked. I mean, that's what they're (laughs) talking right? It's the headline of the moment is that they did some fracking and now they're going to explode here. But you said America. I got more of a China vibe here because there's this whole one child kind of policy that no one can actually have a natural birth. Does that mean they're not having sex? No wonder these people are dying. I mean, like, (laughs) I can understand why Zod's unhappy if he's in a sexless world of predeterminism. If babies are only grown on vines like berries and farmed by these little octopus things, then, yeah, this sounds like it would be unsustainable. I was shocked at this part in Krypton. You know, we open up with the birth of Kal-El. This film starts with childbirth, and I'm like, okay, this seems like a really weird place to start, not knowing the significance of this actual childbirth. And then, we, yeah, Jor-El, he's going to get the codex, and we see this scene from The Matrix where, yeah, octopus things are harvesting fetuses off vines. I tried to research this to see if this was in any of the comics, any version of the many, many versions of Krypton. And, you know, one of the things about Krypton, they are always a very scientific race, almost kind of think like the Vulcans, very scientific-minded, very logical. I never got this sexless vibe from them, but okay, it's it's a different way to take it. We've reached the pinnacle of science where we can now make these perfect Kryptonians and, you know, they're like ants and we'll have our perfect working class and our perfect warrior class. I mean, we've seen this throughout world history, you know, where you had a warrior class and you had a worker class, the slave. They've taken this to a scientific extreme at this point. And my kind of take on this was twofold. First of all, they call it population control. And I'm thinking, well, if you've expanded to too many people for your planet and you have the ability to find other sustainable planets and live there, it seems like that would be an easier way to go. But the second thing is this movie stinks of Christ metaphors. Poorly executed Christ metaphors, I might add. That's saying a lot for a retrospective that has been full of Christ metaphors. It's a go-to for the character. I think that, yes, they have always seen this superhero as a way of making secular religious parable. They are thinking this is the passion of the Kal-El because they're marketing this to churches. They are sending promotional pamphlets with video clips saying, show these video clips in your multimedia enabled church. I guess that's a thing now. Oh, oh, trust me, being here in Texas, there are churches the size of universities here. I'm sure they got some big screens in them. And they're giving ideas on how Man of Steel can be discussion points for theological discussions in their church. So they're really selling it. And that even offends me more because, as I've said, I think this is strained. But I didn't know this. There was an article on CNN. There's a whole company that just does this. And Les Miserables and Soul Surfer, The Blind Side, the same company just goes and sends clips to churches to try to bring in that passionate audience. Yeah, I mean, that made $400 million. They want that audience. Well, I hope they have a really good answer for when the little kid raises his hand and asks, why is Jesus from space? I mean, I think to a point, this does have themes, and I think it can kind of be used against a scientific view of creation and seen it more as a divine God inference. But I definitely think that you might want to slow up before you hit your train to space Jesus. I mean, this is... (laughs) 
this is kind of fringe when you really think about it. You do not want to tell fundamentalists they're worshiping an alien. And some people agree with you, and I think with me, there was one person quoted saying, any pastor who thinks Man of Steel is good Sunday morning strategy must have no concept of how high the stakes are or very little confidence in the power of God's word. But there are others who are going for it, any way to connect to an audience. But I'm no theologian. I would think most real theologians would scoff at this. I'll say I'm not a theologian, but I have studied religion quite a bit, and you said they've done it with all these other movies. It sounds like Hollywood trying to exploit certain markets to me. They're cutting bits and pieces. As we go on in this film, this is not Jesus. Jesus does not do what Superman does at the end of this film. I think it's exploitation, honestly. They're trying to trick people to come and see, oh yeah, this is a good Christian film, come watch it. I don't think it's the other way around where they tried to put Christian influence. I mean, obviously, there's these Christ metaphors, but Donner had that. You you could say they were reflecting back onto those films. I don't think there's an overt Christian message that they put in here to get that crowd. I think it's the other way around where they're taking certain parts uh, contextually and giving them those pieces. I agree. For me, in viewing this, the parallels are easy to draw, but ultimately what they mean, it still escapes me. I'm still mulling this over. I don't know why it seems like a bold choice to imply that the superhero and christ are brothers but yeah ultimately i don't feel like this was a filmmaking choice so much as a marketing choice are you saying putting him in the christ poses was a marketing choice or that they just saw Zack snyder put jesus allegories in here and decided to capitalize the latter they knew that this is something that they do in superman movies and they accentuate those moments to try and say, for that audience, this is what they want. I think this movie was made by a bunch of people sitting around, maybe passing a bong, maybe not going, that Jesus dude is cool. I've heard of him. Let's put some stuff in here like that. Honestly, I think it was about as well thought out as that because it goes nowhere. Well, here, my take on it is in a world where every birth is immaculate, the natural conceived person is the Messiah. Right. What makes this character godlike is that he's the natural way. It's anti-science. I do feel like this movie has some anti-science vibes to it with the way that Krypton is sort of punished for it. And then later, one of the villains even says, it's evolution. You care about people and we're evolutionary advanced. She goes, yes, you care about people and we don't. We're more evolved. Last time I checked, evolution was more about survival and adaptation, not about empathy. I don't even think these people know what evolution means. We've called it out. It's David Goyer who's writing this, and we've talked a lot about his writing. And, you know, for better or for worse, I feel at times he does bring some strengths having a lot of the comic book knowledge. But as far as solid storytelling, pulling Nolan out of the equation here, yeah, I'm surprised at some point we didn't get a line from, like, Blake trying to skate uphill or whatever that line was. Use it! That's what Martha should have said when Jonathan died. Use it! (laughs) The writing is uneven here. But I think Goyer has learned some stuff by working with Nolan. I wouldn't call it a bad script. I would say it's an uneven script. It raises questions and I want to know the whys and it's not quite carried through to the end here. And this is a big one for me is why is Superman, why is the destiny for these people a natural birth 
and everyone else deserves to die. I mean, what I take from this is the reason why they don't evacuate. The reason why Russell Crowe is only putting his child and the ship to go away is the rest of them deserve to die for being inbred, right? That this is essentially a society kind of like how Rome fell. It just got too incestuous and now it must die off. He is a nihilist to his own culture. I don't think Jorel wanted them to all die off. He tried to warn them. It's like going back to the other films where we've seen this argument with the council. They just don't buy into it. They're going to do things their way. They called out political corruption and how they're steadfast and aren't going to change their ways. And so he goes rogue and tries to send this child off. And I just want to clarify, I'm not saying that this is a completely poorly written script. We're going to go through my thoughts on the story. But I think there are lines in here that use terms like evolution and RSS feed and don't really (laughs) know what they mean. And I think that they've never read a Bible, but they're writing about one. Yeah, I have a question. Do you guys know what Codex means? I thought I knew what a Codex was until I saw that the Kryptonian Codex is like a caveman skull (laughs) with computer programs writing on it. I don't understand this. Jacob, nobody reads anymore. You know, (laughs) why make it a book? It's much more (laughs) visually fun to have it a glowing skull in the center of this tube full of fetuses. Clearly, they just wanted a cool look to this. It is the embodiment of all of their culture in some rotting skull. I don't get the (laughs) skull. I don't. Does that mean they're all clones from one person? Like there's one elder Kryptonian and they've been taking him molecule by molecule and that's why it's left to this tiny skull? I mentioned incest before. I mean, it's a theory as to why Rome fell. I do feel like that's here. I actually think that that's what they're saying is that this culture has got too incestuous. Its gene pool is too shallow now and everyone's tainted. The only thing that can be saved is a natural birth. And yes, this is a savior not only for Earth, But this is also a savior of this culture. He's taking the best of them with him as he leaves. I really do feel like Jor-El has written off his people here. And who can blame Zod that he wants to still fight for them? Yeah, and this is something from the comics, is that Zod tried to recruit Jor-El. Zod bought into this, that Krypton was going to die, and they needed to have an insurrection to overthrow this council to save the planet. But Jor-El wasn't willing to take those violent steps. Why is he here at the council to begin with? Jarrell is not telling them he had a baby that didn't come out of the vending machine. He's lecturing them for some reason. He's basically saying, you fools, you wouldn't let me get the people out and now we're all going to die. And then Zod comes walking in. Jarrell is trying to convince them to go to the stars again. I don't know if they have time for that, but the speech he's giving is go to the stars as our ancestors did. You've ruined the core. We need to go to space. And I don't know at what point in the next two minutes he gives up that hope. (laughs) Yes. I'll say this whole opening Krypton scene, it's a problem with editing. They're trying to fit a lot in here, and there's no indications of passages of time. It's like this baby's born, and then here's Jor-El in front of the council. Now Zod's attacking. Now Jor-El's getting the codex. Now there goes Kal-El into space. Now the planet's blowing up. It feels like it all happened in an hour, right? They want to get to Earth, and I understand that impulse, but I feel like we could spend... 40 minutes just here on Krypton to really flesh this out. Should we have even had any of this on Krypton? I mean, later on, everything we learn here is told to us again twice. Once by Jarell's hologram and once by Zod. Did we need this or could we have just started where the movie starts later on with Clark working on a fishing boat? Yeah, you could start there. Yeah, I think that would have been a bold take. 
for this film, for this franchise, for really a superhero movie in general to just start with the character already fully grown, already has his powers, and we kind of learn things through backstory. That's something I've argued throughout these different superhero films. Ah, I'm sick of the origin film. Let's find a new way to do this. This was disorienting to me. We saw Krypton blow up, and we saw Zod get put in the negative zone dildo and thrown into space. I'm glad someone else thought those looked like penises going up into space. Who didn't? I mean, it was stunning. <laughs> I couldn't believe they got out. The whole thing. I just want to side out. Krypton and everything has a real Giger vibe to it. The suits that they put on. I mean, it really was an alien Prometheus world here with the genetics and all of that. I even have to wonder, are they the ancestors of humankind? We'll get there when we get to the Arctic base, but I definitely feel like they took a heavy influence from Alien and H.R. Giger with the way that this whole world looks, including, yes, those phallic imprisonment tubes that suck them up to the Phantom Zone. And the Phantom Zone is a bunch of sperm, right? We're all on that page, too. I didn't think about it, but now that you say it, yes, I can totally see that. Yeah. You had penises going into the sperm. I don't know what that means. Well, I think the sperm was creating the uterus, and the penises went into the uterus, and then the sperm closed <laughs> it back up. Again, I feel like the big theme here is the idea that the gene pool is small, that, that the problems here are the fact that these people are closed off. The only way that a species can survive is if it expands, if it steps out of its domain and that's why a natural born child that meets another culture and falls in love with it and learns from it that's why it's going to be stronger and super and better than a culture that is isolationist and demanding to stay home and and not living fulfilling its destiny of being a superpower I suppose it is a metaphor for America and where we're at right now. Yeah, I feel it at least paid lip service to that. I don't know if it pays off all the way through, but I felt like, you know, with those Dark Knight films, especially the Dark Knight, I, I felt like it was commenting so much on where the U.S. was uh, with the war and terrorism, all those kinds of things, the politics. Here, I feel like they try to do that again. I don't know if it's quite as successful. Well, I know it's not quite as successful. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not quite as successful. It's an interesting concept. I guess all I would say is it was a little garbled, and I would have liked to maybe have spent more time in Krypton if you're going to go to Krypton. You're right. They could start this just with adult Superman going around, and as he learns about his past, we do too. But I think they wanted a big hook. And, you know, this is a big space battle. It's got explosions and creatures and... What did you think about Jor-El? I mean, this guy was Superman already. He's busting out the kung fu and the sword fighting and dodging these laser machines as he's stealing the codex. I'm like, this is not Marlon Brando eating a cheeseburger, eating his lines off a piece of cardboard that they have to hold up for him. Is he doing kung fu? I couldn't tell. I heard sound effects. I saw the camera shake. I couldn't see Russell Crowe in any of those action shots, though. Hold the camera still please i honestly thought they were editing around like maybe in that toyetic suit russell crowe is wearing he couldn't move <laughs> couldn't move yet yeah i think that that's why you had to start with krypton is at the end of the day if you want to understand jor-el and if you want to understand zod you have to see it we can't be told about it it can't be something in flashback we have to experience it as the first thing that stays with us and then we jump to earth or the deadly is catch as it turns out <laughs> yeah, we jump straight to him as an adult. We get in flashback tales of him in Smallville. And in fact, we spend the next half hour of this 
going through, like I called it, this incredible hulkish, he's going town to town, and in between each town, we get a tale from his childhood that kind of matches. Yeah, you know what? I kind of like this, and I did totally see the Hulk thing. I wrote down Bill Bixby as I watched him traveling around and having to leave every time he used his powers. I don't, I like this take. This is a different take. You know, instead of spending 12 years at space school with Marlon Brando, we see a character that's gradually learning about these powers. We get these flashbacks to when he's in school and, and he, all of a sudden he gets just see through everything and he, he could hear everything and it's driving him mad. And, you know, as an adult, we see him learning more and more about his powers, trying to be responsible with them, going and saving the ship. But then at the same time, hey, guess what? There's a bully truck driver, just like in Superman 2. And I'm like, oh, I hope they play this right because that was a scene that bothered me. And you know what? I, I think I called it out that Superman should have just messed with his truck. And that's what he does here. You know, we can still see from this bowling from his past, he's still got these anger issues. And what do you do when you're the most powerful person in the world and you have anger issues? Well, you, you stick some timber through someone's truck. Yeah, I do like this. When he's being picked on by the trucker guy, there's a flashback to Smallville at the very end of the movie that I think probably was filmed intended to go here where you see him picked on and his father, the other Robin Hood, comes over and says, did they hurt you and things like that. But they had a lot of the flashbacks going on. He also, before even the trucker, saved a rig of oil drillers. Anyone else think he looked like Wolverine with that beard and the shirtless and the screaming? Yep, I got that Hugh Jackman Wolverine vibe, definitely. Let's face it, Henry Cavill, what he brings to Superman is that really rugged vitality here. I would go ahead and say that this is probably the most macho, toughest. He's no action figure. He's no hairless doll. They really want to sell a feral man's man as Superman. Emphasis man here. I don't know if it's an incredible performance, but I think the one thing that he gives here is he steps away from that funniness that sort of characterized the Christopher Reeve iteration and just gives you something a little more primal and action-y. And it's what this movie's going for. This movie is darker, so I think he's the right Superman for this world. That must explain, this is something that stuck out to me throughout the film. Once he puts the suit on, his chest hair is coming above that oh, suit. Yeah, I don't know no, if you guys noticed yeah. that. It's something my eye went to. I'm like, they couldn't just shave the top there? Like, yeah, but maybe that's what they are going for. This is an angrier, a younger, more primal Superman that's not quite as refined as Christopher Reeve because he's gone to, I guess, Space Community College instead of Space University with Marlon Brando. Yeah, he went where the writer went. I didn't notice the chest hair on the suits. Go see it a third time. <laughs> Oh, it's there. Yeah. No, it's quite evident that they want to accentuate that quality about him. I mean, I think Henry Cavell, I mean, that's why you cast him, right? I mean, I don't think that anything that he does here requires a big drama. Certainly no comedy. We can all agree he's not funny. He doesn't even try to be, does he? I think he's got one bit with Lois in an interrogation room that got a laugh, but my audience almost never laughed. I counted two laughs. There were some applause, but almost no laughs. He's not going for that. Yeah, I got two laughs, and one of them was the truck. Yeah, the truck, and then when he snaps the handcuffs. Oh, no, my other one was when they find him hot. Okay, three. Yeah, right. Okay, so three laughs, yeah. But yeah, no, this is not the Christopher Reeve, dry, humorous Superman and the bumbling Clark Kent. I mean, we don't really get a Clark in this film, right? No. But he is Clark. I was really getting a Smallville vibe where he doesn't have the dual identity. He is Clark. I mean, when he's racing up a building, somebody's yelling, Clark! Lois knows him as Clark. His mother knows him as Clark. There isn't a Superman in this. That is true. 
but there is a Clark or a Cal. I also got the Cal kind of from Smallville because Smallville was the first place I'd ever heard him just go by his first name and not the fully denoted Cal L. There's not the definitive dual personalities in this film. This feels like one character coming into his own. And maybe in that sequel, we'll see more of a split between Kent and Cal. But in this film, they're pretty much the same person. That's absolutely right. The human side used to be personified by Clark Kent. And then the heroic side was when he put on the tights. And you knew what you were getting just by physically looking at him. Here... That's not the case. I did get the real sense that I was watching one character, and it was Kal-El. It was an alien. This is a story like E.T. about someone that falls from the sky, is sad to be left behind, feels alone in the universe, finds someone that understands him, and works on trying to get the answers that he needs here. It feels very much like an alien extraterrestrial story, and I had never thought of Superman in that way. If there's something revolutionary about the way this is told, it's the fact that it may me remember he's Kal-El. I can honestly say as the non-comic book guy, I didn't really know that Superman had this name Kal-El, even though it was mentioned in those Donner movies. That never stuck with me. Well, I guess until Nick Cage named his son that, but but truly, <laughs> until this movie, that never seemed to matter. But here, I really do feel like the character is Kal-El. It would be wrong to call him Superman. It would be wrong to call him Clark Kent. I mean, sometimes he's called Joe. Sometimes he's called Greenhorn. I feel like they have all kinds of names for this character. You think of him as Kal-El. But Clark is kind of bullied, and he is kind of a nerd, at least in these flashbacks as a child, because he's an outcast. He's virtually autistic with his inability to control his powers and his reactions to it. And he's constantly told, don't tell people who you are. You must hide who you are. Yeah, one of the things that really gave me a bad vibe was that I think is the first trailer where we learn that Clark saves this kid from this drowning bus and his dad's like, well, maybe you should have let him die. And I'm like, oh, come on. No, this is not Pa Kent. This is not the Pa Kent I've read in the comics that I've seen in those Donner films. No, this is this is going to be awful. But you know what? As I watch this film in context, what I see what Costner's Pa Kent is doing here, to your point, Stuart, this is very much E.T., an alien film where we have to keep your identity secret or they're going to come and dissect you. I don't know if it's a very different take, but it's a unique take, I think, on Superman. You don't often see this side of it played up where it's about this alien and here's these parents that know the truth and they want to keep that a secret. They know what the human reaction would be to this alien showing up on Earth. One of the beautiful things about this movie is I hate Kevin Costner in this movie for doing this. He's essentially saying, this is who I am. And Kevin Costner's saying, stay in the closet. The world can't handle it. And I'm like, no, you can't handle it. You need to let him be who he is. I'm taking the perception that he is being wrongly secluded and that, that this, this is abuse. But Kevin Costner is proven right in this. It wasn't that he said to him, don't ever show your powers. It's that you have to be ready at that time, when that moment comes. One day you will be great, but it's not while you're a teenager. Who wouldn't celebrate? This is a one parent that doesn't want to put his kid into show business. I love that. I totally respect <laughs> No, that. but he wants him to be a farmer, a sixth generation farmer. You know, but I do love the play back and forth. We have this scene where 
Clark or Cal, he's older and he's having this debate and he calls out, you know, mom, pa, can't that you're not really my parents. And, you know, he has kind of that adolescent uh, rebellion against them. You know what? Teenager doesn't feel like they're from another world than their parents anyway. I felt that was very relatable. This whole scene in the truck that leads up to this tornado. This is not something I was expecting. Again, we talked about that heartbreaking scene where Pa Kent, he just drops dead of a heart attack. Here, the death of Pa Kent is very much related to his devotion to making sure Cal or Clark is ready for the world to see what he really is. He's willing to die for that. He stands by his word. I mean, he said you should have let the kids on the bus drown. And now that his own life is at stake, he is willing to make that sacrifice. Don't you find it stupid, though, that Pa Kent dies for the dog? I mean, he goes back for the dog. Oh, come on. This happens all the time in real life. There's a flood, someone jumps in to get their dog, and they end up dying, and the dog turns out all right. Okay, but send Clark back for the dog. Clark can get the dog. Clark can make it look hard. It seemed like they were killing him because it was convenient to the story. I get that it was supposed to be this big sacrifice, and it was. He dies in this way everyone in this movie dies. They stand there and become this whiff of dust, same way Lara died on Krypton with the lava. But come on, it's a sacrifice for no need for the sacrifice to be. He didn't need to die at that moment. There could have been a million ways for Clark to explain away saving his father and or the dog. They did this every week on Smallville. It didn't ring as a true moment to me. I got what they were doing. I just didn't like it. The truth is, all of them would be dead. I need to give a little now playing public service announcement, folks. This recently happened in the news where a lot of people died because a tornado was coming and they decided to get out of town. First, if a tornado's coming, don't go to your car. Second... If a tornado's coming and you're in your car, don't get out of your car to go into a wind tunnel. Really? They would all be dead. Get in a ditch. It's low elevation. Getting them all under that bypass just means you're in a place where these possibly 90, 120 mile an hour winds are going to be in a straight line and snap your neck. You know, it gets confusing because here in California, we got the earthquake thing and they always tell you to get in the door frame. So I think I might have made this mistake. I'm not going to judge them. I probably would have gotten under the bypass as well. Oh, come on, Stuart. Earthquakes, you don't get under the overpasses. Those always fall down in California. (laughs) That is true. You can say it's a little contrived. I do feel it's a lot of coincidence that people have these big dramatic fights in the family and then there's a catastrophe to underline the point of it. I mean, I do feel like that's awfully convenient. Every line here in these flashbacks are to tell you the moral of the flashback. I, I, yes. Again, I feel like this is Goyer having watched what Nolan did and trying to replicate that and it's just not coming off as natural. At some point, I've just accepted it's not going to be as great as what Nolan did and they're going to be heavy-handed remarks, and I'm just going to go with it. There is a contrivedness to it, but I think some of these scenes work. I did find myself kind of choking up during the tornado scene. I realize it's not because of anything that was being done by the actors. I actually think it's the score. I think that they have this really powerful, emotional piano score, and whenever they use it, it gets me. Yeah. They really got something lucky here with Hans Zimmer's score. It helps make some of these contrivances work. I'm going to echo your comment on the score there because I really thought they were living in a shadow of what John Williams had done. And how could you get a score that would feel Superman and not 
be the Williams score. And they've done it. They have found a way. And I knew that going in. I'd heard it on the trailer and they've released a clip. And this is an awesome score. This is a Superman theme for the new age. You mentioned the piano music. I love the march. And I'm kind of hot and cold on Zimmer. I was like, meh, with his stuff in The Dark Knight. I liked his anthem. But a lot of it, as we said in those podcasts, was atmospheric music that you wouldn't want to listen to. But here, he's really created a symphony that is just great to listen to. Yeah, maybe I'll have to listen to just the score on its own. There's nothing that, as far as inspiring me or me as a six-year-old to tie a towel around my neck and go flying up and down or at least sticking my arms out and running up and down the movie theater aisles uh, pretending I'm Superman. There's an effective use uh, to tie in some of these emotional moments. Yes, I'm buying into Pac and Sacrifice because of this score. Yeah, Costner's okay. I've always been kind of lukewarm on Costner, even during his heyday. I mean, they're using him because of Field of Dreams, right? What man could better serve a mystical story set in the wheat fields of Kansas than Kevin Costner? I mean, he's just made for it here. And I think he's okay. It's just really both the credible special effects and the score that make his parting sad. What's funny is I'd never thought of Field of Dreams. Now that you say that, it makes perfect sense. With him here, with Russell Crowe here... It felt like they went to the old home of former movie stars and found the people whose box office draw wasn't quite what it used to be and littered this film with them. And I liked what they gave here. I liked Crow. I liked Costner. Yeah, I think everybody here works. Saying I liked it is maybe a little bit strong of the use of the word. I thought they were effective. The cast as a whole do what they set out to accomplish. I don't think anyone's a standout. I'll go ahead and say that. I can't cite any one performance here that blew me out of the water. But I think that they all were in service of a vision. And both Crow and Costner work as sort of dueling philosophies of fatherhood and raising a child. It's still the same battle as Brando and the other father. They've just elaborated on it more. Crow sent his son here to do great things. Costner seems to be, for much of the picture, blocking him from his potential. Yeah, I think they kind of reversed the roles here. You know, Brando Jorel was all about, hey, you can't get involved in human affairs. You can't have changed the course of Earth and Pa Ken in those films, like, you were sent here to do something great. You need to do something great. Here, it's more Jarrell. He's like, oh, he's going to teach them to be gods like he is. And it, Pa Ken's the one that's kind of, ah, you got to kind of hang back and wait. Just wait. Just wait. Don't get involved yet. Yeah, I thought it worked as a conflict while I am not roused. And I don't feel like it has either the problems nor the heart of the Donner universe. It is respectfully re- purposing those ideas and moments and creating its own thing here. It's cohesive. I like the flashback stuff. I like that they're not growing chronologically. I like the fact that we're seeing Clark as Drifter. I'll say I liked it on the second time. The first time I watched this movie, it was disorienting to go straight from Cal's ship about to crash to him being in his 30s, I think, on that fishing boat, at least late 20s. And then going to all these flashbacks without any purpose. The movie becomes as aimless as Cal in these points. There is no beginning, middle, end. There's no point to it. We're being told things. We're being shown things. But there's no plot here. We're just getting scenes from a life. And the first time I watched that, it felt long and meandering. 
there are times where I felt that when we talked about the codex, when we saw these fetuses being harvested, why did we open up on childbirth? Yeah, there's moments where I'm like, why are they doing this? I feel later on they get explained that I think this is kind of modern storytelling where we're going to jump around and maybe things will get tied up or maybe this is just Zack Snyder. If you've seen Sucker Punch, there's a lot of jumping around and I don't know, fantasies or flashbacks or whatnot. And do they ever pay off? I don't know. It's an uneven movie. I can't argue that. But I do feel like I'm rooted in the present day story. This is a story about an alien trying to find out how he landed up on Earth. Unlike the Donnerverse, this child didn't get a 12-year lecture on what was happening to him. He's got to find it here in the present. I like that. And they try to make these tie back. They tie back to him at the oil rig floating in the water with his mom telling him to concentrate and swim to an island. I mean, they're kind of contrived, but they do try and find metaphors and ideas that make those memories tied with what's happening. But I feel rooted in the present-day stuff, and I don't feel like the burden of the origin story and these flashbacks is so heavy that it's completely stopping my enjoyment of this movie. Even though, yes, I do feel like facing issues here. Here's the funny thing. On the second viewing, this is my favorite part of the film. But my first viewing, I really had trouble just kind of going, can we get to the point? I mean, I liked the way the 3D x-ray vision looked and he could see this musculature and the skeletons and all of that. But I just didn't know what the plot of the movie was. I knew Zod would come back eventually, but when? Mm. I like this take on Superman, this alien who all of a sudden these powers start manifesting and he's got to figure out how to live with them. I don't know. I like this. If we're setting this in a more Nolan-esque realistic universe, if that's what we're going to call this, this makes sense that all of a sudden he's seen through walls and all of a sudden he could hear everything in the world and that would drive you mad. Yes, the way everything is summed up in a metaphor, listen to my voice, it's an island. and It's very contrived, but I like this take. I'm going to say it. I like this take. I like Christopher Reed in that epic biblical feel, but I like this more alien feel. This person has come to this planet and he's learning to live on it. And I like that it makes the human parents important. It's not just like they put clothes on him and hid the spaceship under the barn. They're really teaching him a lesson that's going to make him better than when Zod comes back. He learns by having 33 years of training how to process being on the planet. I really like the idea that he is so overwhelmed with superpowers that without their instruction, people would just look like walking skeletons. Like, it really would be a horror show. He'd be insane. They keep him sane. I do like that take on it very much. That is one of my favorite moments, the classroom scene, where he is startled by his x-ray vision. And you mentioned him being 33 at the main crux of the story. You know what age Jesus was, right? When he returned from India or wherever he went? 32, 33, yeah. That's not new. Donner did that as well. I'm not saying he didn't. But you're angry about it here, whereas the last time you were fine with it. I'm not angry. I'm pointing it out because I want to see if it ever gets to a point. I want to see if there's anything more than he's vaguely Jesus-like or if there actually is a point to it. Donner, he made his point. Here, I want to see what Snyder, Goyer's, Nolan's point of making all of these religious analogies is. Religious analogies aside, we started off on H.R. Giger-inspired world. Now we're moving on to the thing. We're finding a 20,000-year-old spaceship under the ice. (laughs) I definitely thought the thing when they said it was 20,000 years old. Did 
Jorel know this ship was here with its fetus baby busload, and that's one of the reasons they chose Earth for Cal? And are we the descendants of the people that inhabited it from Krypton? It is interesting because we see these pods, and Cal wipes one off, and there's a skeleton in there, but there's another one that was opened, right? Yeah, and I wondered what that was. Yeah, I was wondering, oh, is this Zod spaceship that crash landed? Or, yeah, who is this 20,000-year-old Kryptonian walking around Earth now? Yeah, I definitely feel like a reading of this was that we're the natural evolutionary lineage of those creatures that they didn't all die out you know they were very vague about why they were no longer out in the universe colonizing all the planets anymore my feeling is that they just lost contact and that we did evolve that we are kryptonians one step removed which makes me wonder why can't i fly why can't i have x-ray vision well he comes from one generation away from not being used to the sun and not being used to the atmosphere. Maybe we've adapted in a bad way. I'm not convinced we're Kryptonian. I'm really not convinced of that. I was confused by that open pod. It's left open. Maybe that Kryptonian knocked up some cavewoman chick. <laughs> there you go. And so we're some kind of hybrid. It's the interspecies thing. It's what this movie's about. It's about bridging cultures. They're all about biracial, biplanetary. That's what's going to be our survival. Yeah, Jorel calls out that the survival of Krypton is Kal-El being able to replicate with the human race, being able to have sex and have children with the human race. At least that's what I got, that that was the end goal. Yeah. I thought the goal was, honestly, they put the codex in him. I thought the point was whenever he got where he was going, he could somehow repopulate Kryptonians, but that they wouldn't take over, they'd live peacefully among us. Now, what I can't figure out is because this movie is full of technobabble that even the writer doesn't understand, can he just at some point bring forth his cellular structure to create people, or did he need the baby bus? You know, it's weird because we never get this moment. I thought for sure at some point we'd have Cavill having it sucked out of him. That we learned that that baby skull was zapped into him while he was an infant going into the ship. I figured that he would be put in a similar contraption with it being sucked out of him at some point. He is strapped down, but they didn't know until after he was free again that he literally has the codex in him. They believe the codex is still on the ship. They're looking for it as a physical object. They don't recognize that he is the codex. It is confusing, and it does make you wonder, how can he take his genetics and extract them to become Krypton again? I take it like you, Jacob. It means go out there and multiply. Do it the old-fashioned way. Natural birth is best, so get to work, kid. You're 33. Yeah, maybe he could knock up Lois Lane, who makes an appearance finally. Amy Adams. I know her from some rom-coms and the Muppets. I first saw her on The Office when she had a little role on there. I first saw her on Smallville. Well, I know her from indie movies. Junebug, I loved her performance in that. I still think it's the best thing she's ever done. The Fighter, she was recently in The Master. I think of her as a dramatic actress. It's funny. I guess she has done some of these cutesy things. She typically plays a cutesy character, but she's got gravitas here. She's the best of both worlds. She is pretty, but she's not unbelievable as a hard-nosed Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter, and yet she doesn't have that gruffness that sort of she's not grinding her teeth away is that, what you're <laughs> yeah, that was kind of repellent you know I'll use the word repellent from Margot Kidder at her worst 
No, this is a very competent Lois Lane. She's not asking how many, what, peas are in rapist. I kind of like her when she first shows up on this military base and they're like, why are you here? And she throws out, I don't know, some lingo about how it's really a Canadian operation and uh, stop measuring your dicks. Amy Adams doesn't seem like a tough person to me. Very soft features, very beautiful. But this first introduction of her as Lois Lane, I bought into it. What is she? Is she actually an embedded military reporter? They said she was embedded and she has that cutesy line, I'd have writer's block if I'm not in a flak jacket. I bought her as intelligent and I bought her as smart enough to play this role. I didn't buy her as tough. That was a problem with me throughout this entire movie. I'd like the way she plays Lois, though. She's probably my favorite Lois Lane. Yeah, and she doesn't need to be tough. Like, I do not want her to pick up, like, an axe and start doing martial arts. I don't need that. I don't need <laughs> warrioress. No, and I don't mean tough in that way. I mean, but she could hold her own against these military guys. Yeah, I mean tough, like... I guess how Margot Kidder was tough. I can think of some brassy women today. Yeah, she's brassy, yeah. yeah, Who could be more tough and feel like they've actually taken to court to get onto this military base. Amy Adams does not seem like the kind of person who would appeal to the courts to go to a military base. She seems like the kind of person who would go, oh, I can't go on the base. Okay. I don't know. I totally buy it here. And and if you saw The Fighter, I feel like that was a perfect blend of her ability to be a romantic lead and at the same time have a lot of attitude and, and take no guff. And I buy it. Yeah. And in The Master, she's very cold. She pulls it off more during the first half of this film that she's in than the second half. I, I think it kind of goes away, but I buy her at the beginning. She comes across, like most of the actors here, as competent and doing what she needs to without ever grabbing me and going, wow. I don't think it's a great performance, but I think it's not bad. They set up the seeds of the romance that will blossom for the rest of this film here when she goes out on her own and is taking pictures in the dark. With her Nikon. Yes. I think one of the traditions, something that's carried over from that original Donner film, product placement. Yes, Artie, I know you've been mistaken as a professional photographer because of your camera. I, I wanted your input. I was thinking of you. They Hey, I'll tell you, the Nikon D3S is a solid piece of hardware that anyone would be happy to carry in the Arctic. And unfortunately, they're not sending me one for plugging them on the show. <laughs> I mean, that's like a four grand camera. That must be why she could zoom in so well on it and see that there's someone climbing around that spaceship. <laughs> But I also know it's a digital camera, so breaking it does not mean you lose your pictures like the old film-based days. That's what I thought. You just pull the memory card out of it, and you're good to go. Maybe she didn't have the external memory card, and the internal hard drive got damaged. There's not an internal hard drive, but I'm just <laughs> guessing it flew away on the spaceship. All right, Shutterbugs, break it up. I bought the moment enough. I mean, I really wasn't asking the hows and whys the camera worked in this moment. And she finds the ship. The spaceship and fights with the octopus. Keylor, I think, is the name of this thing. <laughs> I wouldn't have thought of the camera if I didn't know Arnie. It's all Arnie's fault. Here's another scene, though. She gets in that fight, and she gets wounded. And Cal saves her. And then he comes up to her, and he looks down, and he goes, You're hemorrhaging internally. You're going to die if I don't cauterize the wound. He's cauterizing the external wound. How's that helping the internal hemorrhaging? They needed to have a moment in which he saves her and this is it. It has to be dramatic enough that she is going to want to find him for the rest of the movie. That she is going to not focus on the fact that she's standing in front of a spaceship, but think about the man that saved her instead. I mean, I think he had to outshine 
a UFO, and he does. Yeah, this is not going to be a movie about Lois trying to pull all these little coy tricks to figure out if Clark Kent is Superman. She knows. Thank God. She knows that this guy is Superman. When Superman shows up, she knows who Clark Kent slash Kal-El already is. He, she knows it's the same person. And I definitely like how they pull that off. I like that he has that line, I can do things other people can't. And again, Jesus, he's healed the infirmed, and then he flies off, and this does play kind of like the old one. He confers with a hologram of his dad who gives him a brief history of time. Yeah, did you think this was the new Fortress of Solitude? Like, I was surprised. He flies off in the spaceship and just lands it somewhere else in the Arctic. I was wondering, how is a Fortress of Solitude going to work in the 21st century with drones and satellites? And it doesn't seem really addressed here, but for a short time at least, this is the Fortress of Solitude. Yeah, I think it could probably cloak. It probably has all kinds of magical write-offs that could explain this. Yeah, this is the Fortress of Solitude. I totally <laughs> took is that and i like it yeah it's the fortress of solitude by way of spencer gifts because their whole hologram technology is like one of those 3d things that you put your face in at spencer's yeah sure i remember doing that yeah it feels a little <laughs> dated in that respect at least we don't have crystals i'm just glad we moved yeah, on to something else we don't have holograms floating around. Now we have, again, it, it's very vague. It's like Jor-El in the Donner films. Is this AI? At one point, Russell Crowe says his conscience has been put into the computer. I don't know what that really means. But yeah, there's some way it's able to project Kal-El's father here. And most of the other projections, it's Steel. I mean, he's called Man of Steel. That is the nickname. I get that their technology is all manipulating metal here. And so that when he's talking to him, he sees the whole history as a metal pictogram. It almost looks like a collector's coin, but it's moving. It's trippy. I like it. I did think the coin thing. I also found it very intriguing. By the way, I'm going to tell you very little about your people, but let's bring up Zod again, in case you might have forgotten him. <laughs> At least it was more natural than it was in Superman 2. At least Zod did play a big part in this insurrection. We got to see that and more than snapping a red crystal. He seemed like a more significant subject to bring up this time. Yeah, he gets the suit, and, I, and we're going to talk about the suit here in a minute. But he says something, and I feel like this is a new ripple. Correct me if I'm wrong, but he says that he sent him here to make Earthlings his new family. You're not alone anymore. You've got someone to be with you. These people are going to raise you. And not only that, but he's going to enable them to accomplish more. To me, that doesn't mean saving kittens and trees. To me, that doesn't mean every time they mess something up, you clean it up. He is not the world's janitor. What he is here to do is to collaborate on things that are going to help us grow in an evolutionary sense. Am I wrong? This is new. Well, it might be new to you. One of the great Superman stories called All-Star Superman, where it's told as Superman's last story. He's dying throughout the story, and his final act before he sacrifices himself to restart Earth's sun so humanity can continue to live is he collaborates with this scientist so his DNA can be bonded with human DNA and people could evolve into Superman like himself. Yeah, I feel like maybe that's already happened. I feel like they're working on that. And I, again, the script's a little messy and muddy. I don't think all the answers are here. And maybe if I saw it again, it, it would crystallize a little more. But I feel them working with this in these moments. And I'm intrigued. I like that better. I get tired of the fact and can understand why previous Supermen have felt burdened with always having to save everybody. It's as if no one can die anymore, that they must all be rescued all the time. That's tiresome. That's not even help. The fact that he could help us evolve 
Eh, that's a big deal. I think that's new. Yeah, I was intrigued by this idea. They say the S is actually a symbol for hope, which actually came out of the comic as well. Uh, Mark Wade, a big comic book writer, he did Superman Birthright, where they borrowed a lot of this stuff. That's what intrigues me about Superman the most, is not that, he, like you said, Stuart, he's not going to rescue all our kitties, and then we're going to get smacked by our moms for saying Flying Man saved it, but that he's going to inspire us to be something greater, to, you know, world peace, unity, whatever, or literally evolve into Superman being something like that that's what i like about superman is that he is really what we will become he's not an alien he is our future i didn't take it as an evolution thing i took it as what jacob said in our very first superman podcast it's about inspiration it's about mentality not biology that's my reading of the way it was played i mean later on jor-el says you can save all of them and again little jesus-y but i thought it meant more like, again, inspiration, not he's going to stop every single person from dying. Yeah, which he doesn't. We'll get there, though. I'll tell you what, I'm more inspired that he's not putting his red underwear outside a suit now. I think that they fixed the suit. Major controversy on the internet when this hit. Like, this was an early shot of this new suit, which is funny because DC, a couple of years, rebooted, started all their characters over, redesigned all their outfits. But this shot of the new suit came out before the redesign with no red underwear. And his redesign in the comics now, he does not have his red underwear. I think that's a good idea. I mean, I found out just through the research we've done for these podcasts that that's an old thing that, like, the muscle man in the 30s and 40s used to do. Yeah, it's from the circus strongman. Yeah, so... I think that in the 21st century, yes, put your underwear on under, Madonna. <laughs> so this suit with Donner, Superman after space school, just shows up and flies out of the Fortress of Solitude with it. Here, it gets revealed by Jor-El. Is this what's supposed to inspire hope and evolution in the human race, seeing this man wear this suit? I, <laughs> I still don't understand why it's revealed this way. Is it on that ship or did Jor-El make it? Is there a replicator there or was it on the ship sent to Earth and hey, hey, look, it's a suit from the House of L. I think that, yes, this is their outpost. Yeah, House of L. It sounds like House of Dior or House of Prada. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of funny in that respect. But I do feel like, yeah, this is our insignia. This is our logo. If you want to wear our brand, you'll be wearing this suit. And that's the thing is his name is L. He wears an S on his chest and it stands for hope. Somebody's alphabet's a little confused. It's an alien outfit where the S just happens to look like an S on our planet. Yeah, they make that humor. One of the few moments of humor later with Lois, that's explained to her, you know, and she's the one that's almost dubbing him Superman. But nope, nope, nope. We're not calling him that in this movie. They cut it off. I think that all works. You know, it's kind of strange. But again, they're world building here. They're making a new myth. And I'm going with this. I like the suit. I do think it's impressive. And I didn't notice it really until I looked at some of the artwork and poster detail. But it's all made of little metal chain links. It actually, when you look at it up close, the fibers actually look like steel. I thought they were actually that shape of the S on his chest, kind of a pentagon. It was that shape repeated again and again. I'm kind of sick of these textured outfits where it's the small making up the whole. We saw it in Star Trek with the new Star Trek uniforms. I blame Sam Raimi and Spider-Man for it with the fish scale look. But 
I do like the way the Superman suit looks. I, there's no denying that it looks pretty badass, and I love the cape of it. I later found out the cape was never real. That is entirely CGI cape. Wow. And they yeah. did a great job on that. They really did. I wouldn't have guessed that. Yeah, when he makes his dramatic entrance with it in front of the military and it's flapping in the breeze, it works in exactly the way it was designed to. It makes any mortal feel like they're in the presence of someone godlike. It has become a new icon. A CGI cape works in a way a real cape never could. Well, you say you blame Raimi for this suit, or at least the texture of this suit. Do you blame him for what happens next, where we get to see Superman learn about his powers and go jumping around much like Spider-Man? Love this scene, but, but I liked it in 2002 Spider-Man. So yes. <laughs> it's like one of the only few moments of actual joy in this entire movie is Clark learning he can fly. Yeah, I do love that he starts with leaping. That is a throwback to the original comic. You know, if you listen to the opening of those old serials, he's able to leap a tall building in a single bound. He Originally, he could not fly. He would jump really far, much like we saw uh, Ang Lee's Hulk do. Yeah, I was actually thinking of that more than Spider-Man or anything else, but I guess because it's more dour. Spider-Man, I think of that as a light and fun kind of series, whereas here, self-consciously, it is just much more dour and straight-faced. A lot of sucking in the cheeks, a lot of mirthlessness to the fighting and the action. Yes, I think as a whole, the film is like that. But I think during this scene, there is that joy that just as we saw Tobey Maguire hooping and hollering and he's jumping from building to building, Cavell, he breaks a smile here. He's having fun as he's jumping around the Arctic. I guess that's why it feels like an off moment to me is that it doesn't feel in keeping with the rest of it. Kind of unearned in my mind. I think anybody who's learning they can fly is going to be pretty joyous. And I like the way he takes off. He does this several times in the film where he like puts his fist on the ground and builds up his energy. Yeah, like Neo in the Matrix. Yeah, you're right. That is exactly what it is. And it works here. I was enjoying it. I was enjoying the verisimilitude it gave. And for a moment, the camera actually stayed somewhat steady on his face. I mean, even the dramatic moments have been filmed with shaky cam here. The flying scenes were strangely some of the most static. I do like the sonic boom effect or whatever. You have this cone of air that he, as he's breaking the sound barrier at times. I do like that they try to come up with new ways to show this flying effect. Superman returns, they mimic so much of what Reeve did, same poses. I mean, we even get the shot from space in this one, but it's a little bit different. I like that they tried to differentiate this film a bit, even if it is hitting many of the same beats. How could it not at this point? With the explosion of superhero things, we're all citing superhero movies we've seen before. We've at this point seen 50 or more of these stories. They can't reinvent the wheel. This is still a wheel. This is still a superhero origin story. I'm not knocking it. I do feel like there's pacing problems. I don't feel like every moment here works. The scene that you guys are enjoying didn't totally work for me. But up to this point, they've handled the burden of the origin story. He's put it on his shoulders. He's carried us through it. And now let's get to the movie, right? Now it's the time to actually get to the part that we've all come to see. Yeah, he shows up in Metropolis and starts saving kitties right now. No, 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 the <laughs> villain. Come on, the villain, the yin to his yang. We need to see the counterpart to this natural birth savior. And we get it. Here comes Zod. So Michael Shannon, this guy looks familiar to me. I was going through the IMDb. I recognized a lot of the films he's been in. I don't remember him being in any of those films. Is this a somewhat bigger actor? I'm right there with you, Jacob. No idea. You've seen him naked, Arnie. 
He was in the play production of Killer Joe that you and I saw years ago in Chicago. Really? Yeah, yeah. He's a Chicago actor. He's incredible on stage. He's done really a lot of strong work in independent films. Revolutionary Road, he got an Oscar nomination for. Should have won. And I loved him in a movie called Take Shelter that came out a couple years ago. I think he's fantastic. He really has an anxiety and an angst to him that's comparable to Christopher Walken. When I see him, I see a new Christopher Walken, and I'm hoping that Walken is going to rock Azad. I don't feel like he's as great as maybe I had hoped here. Come on, he's got to go up against Terrence Stamp. I had no expectation for him to hit that mark. What worried me early on, on his Krypton scenes, all he does is shout. I'm like, is Zod just going to be shouting throughout this whole film? No, he does tone it down once he gets to Earth. I was thankful for that because I was not impressed with his Krypton scenes where everything was turned up to 11. The thing I liked about his Krypton scenes, though, is he felt like a military leader. He's giving orders, military orders, hold that platform, things along those lines. He is not going for a Terrence Stamp performance. He's never going to ask me to kneel, which is good because I won't. But he's giving me an impression of a general. If his name wasn't Zod, if he was General Bob, then I would have completely gone with it with no comparisons. Because he is Zod, then I initially was thinking Terrence Stamp. By the end of this movie, he's just the baddie with a Caesar haircut. Yes. Yeah, at the end of the day, he shouts a lot, and he's menacing, and he is not a full-on evil guy. He has some shading that allows, I would say a little too heavily, to remind us that he is just fighting for Krypton, and that on some level, he's in the right here. Where he oversteps his bounds is that he's willing to kill all of Earthlings in order to repopulate his planet. And that's never really totally explained why he's impatient for it. I guess he's just kind of an impatient guy. At one point, they state he's genetically engineered to preserve Krypton. So that is his biological imperative. He will do everything to reestablish Krypton. Why it has to be here on Earth? Why he can't, I don't know, take Mars? (laughs) Be our neighbor? But no, he's here. He's going to turn off all the power except to our TV stations and replay a scene from Transformers 2. Yeah, they got these, now that you've called it out, I see it, Stuart, these Geiger-esque masks. They almost look like the engineer's mask. Not almost. They were to me. (laughs) Except they're, what, black? and I guess the engineers had black suits as well. Yep. One of you called out, what if we just started this with Clark Kent on an oil rig saving it? I almost wish they did do that. I mean, this would have been so cool. Oh, who are these weird aliens landing? And then you get this reveal. They're actually Kryptonians. You know, it seems like a moot point to try to disguise themselves now because we already know who they are as viewers. They're not disguising themselves. They need those helmets in order to breathe, right? That's the thing is that Earth is, even though it makes you stronger, ultimately, you have to adapt to it. And they're just landed. Clark has been here for 33 years. That's why they have to wear the helmets. They're not anonymous. In fact, the helmets go clear. I just think that they like to emulate Giger. And should we even bother getting into logic? Like, how does Zod know Clark is in hiding and has been living among in secret? Or Well, I'm sure they were scanning the news stations and the newspapers, the RSS feeds at this point. They see no mention of a superpowered human. I mean, that's how I took it, at least. I just drew that conclusion. If they could tap into every news station and every TV satellite, they could check all the newspaper records. Hell, they got a distress beacon off the ship that Clark woke up, and they just immediately assume, hey, that's Kal-El, and we're going to go and terrorize the populace to give him up? Well, remember those USB keys that they had? It had the 
House of L logo on it. I'm assuming that it's coded to certain clans or whatever that they could read that. And you've been wondering about the comparisons to Christ. This is the moment where we get it in full. This is Clark in front of a stained glass window of Jesus Christ talking to a priest, confessing. Did you notice Jesus is wearing a red cape in that stained glass? No, I didn't, but yeah. I didn't even need to see that in order to see how directly they were calling to it. I thought this was rather bold. I mean, he's a Catholic, honestly, to go there with this directly. It was a bold choice. It's very similar to Pontius Pilate, the crucifixion. This is his time in the desert, and he's preparing to turn himself in and be crucified. Yes, we have this point where Christ was in the desert, and then Christ was arrested. There's also a whole middle part to that story where he goes amongst the people and the people reject him and they calls for his crucifixion and it seems like it was building up pa kent you gotta wait you gotta wait until you're ready to take this responsibility because the people will reject you we never get that unless you substitute the people for the u.s military right it's weird that he hasn't done anything as Superman or whatever, Man of Steel, whatever he wants to call himself. It's weird that he is still totally anonymous. I think it would play stronger if he had made a good name for himself, but was still kind of a folk hero or a legend that some people knew about him. And now that he was generating some goodwill, he was going to have it tested by being turned in. I think that would draw the parallels more closely to Christ, but it's an interesting moment. It's bold. I can't believe that they're doing it. I can't believe that he's seeking advice from a priest, but I think that they just didn't want anyone to miss what they were doing here. You couldn't. It was out there, but I think this is kind of the last we get of it right here, because we're moving far away from Christ as we enter the next act of this film. But before we get to that, he does finally reveal himself to the military in his full costume glory in what may well be my favorite scene of the film right here is him giving himself up. Yeah, and I remember people on the internet, like, freaking out. How do they get handcuffs on Superman? I like that they call this out. He's like, you know, I'm just trying to make him feel good. Again, one of the few laughs in this movie, the audience was ready for it. This has not been a funny Superman, and this was one of the moments where he gets to be. And the way he's just so matter-of-fact, I'm gonna say this. The way he plays the scene, Henry Cavell sells me that he can be Superman. His confidence, his no-nonsense nature, his, I can read your badge, and I can see all of you standing there, and really there's nothing you can do about it. I'm here for good, and I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and I'd like to work with you. It's so earnest, but matter-of-fact, all of a sudden, I'm watching Superman. Yeah, I think if you come with a love like I did for that Christopher Reeve Superman, you have to accept the fact that this is a different take, that you're not going to get that Christopher Reeve. And you know what? I'm going with Cavell in this film. I've liked this journey that he's taken to this point. I've liked seeing him come to terms with his powers, learn about Krypton, take the suit, learn how to fly, offer to work with the military. This is a different take than... We've seen in past Superman films, but I like this one. This is a no-nonsense, a younger Superman, I think. Maybe the same age, technically, as the Christopher Reeve one, but emotionally and by way of learning, this is a younger take on Superman where he's still coming to terms with who he is. And I like it. And I kind of like our military here, too. I mean, there's a lot of military men that we've been introduced to. We see them first in the Arctic. We see them again here. The one that I paid most attention to was Christopher Maloney because I was a Law & Order fan and I was recognizing him. But there was also General Swanwick, 
and several others who just keep recurring throughout this film. And I like the way the military is portrayed here. They're not a bunch of party animal rock star Navy SEALs, macho guys. They're also not a bunch of incompetent boobs. It feels like a mostly realistic portrayal, although not quite as orderly and disciplined and following orders as I'm used to seeing the military. Yeah, there is a crutch sometimes when we have these, but I think of Hulk, of making the military the enemy, and because Superman is so strong, you have to have a force like an army to battle, so it's just convenient to make it an army versus Superman. They could have played it that way. They could have kept this tension about the military not trusting him. They all come around pretty quick. We see even the Maloney character, Hardy. He had given Lois some flack. He's even upset when she's being surrendered over to Zod's people as well here. I think that we see them turn and accept after one big battle, everyone is on board with Superman from that point on. And it, it, I'm glad to see it. Yeah, there is a little bit of that hulkishness, like you mentioned, because later on, the army is still shooting at Superman. They're shooting at all of them. But finally, yeah. the very least, they go, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah, it's one scene, and there's a turn in of it. It really comes from Maloney recognizing that he's saved by Superman. He recognizes from that point forward that this guy is not the same as everyone else. But Zod basically comes to collect, and yes, both Lois and Kal-El get into the ship. The lady that shows up, I thought she said her name was Farah L, and does that make her Superman's sister? I had to look it up. It's actually U-L, it's not E-L. It's an all, not an L. Yeah, it's very confusing to me. Can't they just call her Ursa? Isn't that who she is? She has the same haircut. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I wanted to do. I'm like, come on, aren't they just doing what they did in Superman 2? Isn't this movie, at the end of the day, a very fancy combining of those first two Donner movies? Come on. They told the origin story, and now we got to have this Zod story. They even have somebody that looks like Nam in the background, too. Yeah, I honestly thought that was Nam. And one of our listeners also pointed out, hey, it's 1982 again. The enemies in theaters are Zod and Khan. You know we've gotten old when media is using us and selling our nostalgia back to us. We've (laughs) reached that age. Yeah, I definitely felt there was some shorthand going on here. That huge seven-foot guy, he might as well have been Nan, and this one might as well have been Ursa. I gotta say, though, no kryptonite. They don't pull the kryptonite in this film. They go on to Zod's ship, and Superman gets weak. But I like this take. It's not because there's kryptonite, but because it's the Kryptonian environment which he's not used to. That kind of depowers him. I like that is related to kryptonite. Kryptonite is irradiated pieces of krypton from the explosion that weaken him. But here, I don't know, this makes a little bit more sense than magic rocks. Yeah, it's the same thing. I mean, that, that's what the way I take it. It's not like they radically did something different here. The point is, the place that he came from is now poisonous to him. That's how, always how I took the green crystal, and it's how I take this air. It's, it's just a different way of doing it. I like that it's not that this rock poisons him or this atmosphere is poisoning him. It's taking away his superpowers. It just makes him human. So you could then shank him, but it's not like it itself is giving him super allergies. No, it's it's more like throwing the blanket over nuclear man. 
Yes. They aren't using crystalline imagery here. So, yeah, they just have him choking on air, collapsing, and having a really expedient exposition dump dream in which Zod explains to him why he's got to turn a farm field into a sea of skulls. This definitely felt like a Snyder touch to me. Oh, we're going to just have this sea of skulls in this trippy sequence that is going to occur because I like visuals and this is how we're going to do it. And having this non-linear kind of dream sequence thing. I know it's supposed to be the scary Terminator 2 moment where the nuclear bomb goes off and it melts and all that. But, you know, I've just seen that movie, This is the End. And yes. there's a character <laughs> that he walks by a flaming swing set and mocks it as a cliche of lost innocence. And when I see <laughs> the swing set here, I'm just like, oops, this is the wrong weekend to release that <laughs> yeah. that image here. It, it was bad timing, but it's funny. It is something kind of contrived about this moment. But I'm glad that they're getting it through it quickly. The pacing of this movie has been a little off. We kind of know what Zod's about already. This is Superman catching up with us, but I'm ready for him to get it, and then I'm ready for them to fight. And when this last act of action, action, action starts off, it doesn't start off with Clark. It starts with Lois and Jor-El in what I actually find to be a fun staged sequence of him not able to touch anything, but he can close doors and tell her where to shoot. Yeah, I do like that Lois is a more active character in this film. She is not the maiden to be rescued, at least in every scene. Yes, there are scenes where she will be rescued, but there are times where she is the active character. Yes. Yeah, the next scene, Jacob, when she's falling in the egg to the atmosphere. Who does that? Gets in an escape pod and then it doesn't have a way to land. No, I think what happened, I thought the same thing the first time. I think what happened is Fiora shot it as it was ejecting and caused it to damage. At first, I thought Russell Crowe gave her a gimpy pod just so that Clark had a reason to become super and save her. But I do enjoy that scene. Oh, I was wrong. There is another Christ metaphor because he takes the crucified pose as Clark falls out of the ship to go rescue her. I don't know why. That's the one that really bugged me. You know, Jor-El's like, go save, you could save everyone. And what does he do? He falls backwards, arms outstretched. This is like the third or fourth time his arms have been outstretched. You know, I get it. You're floating in water. Yes, when I float in water, my arms are outstretched. You want to create surface to catch that water on. But man, yeah, this is the one that bugged me. Right after you're told you're going to save everyone, you go into the Christ pose. I just think that it's a bold choice when you're talking about evolutionary advantage at the same time. I mean, that's rarely done. Usually that's seen as different philosophies on how we came along. The fact that we're having a Jesus and he's helping us evolve. I think they're trying to bridge something here. It's not quite clear to me, but there is sort of a creationism evolution sort of hybrid that Superman is actually trying to appeal to fundamentalist audiences as well as secular audiences. And it's it's a strange choice I haven't totally worked through in my brain here, but I can't get angry about it. I feel like it maybe is played one too many times here, but they've always done it. Again, I, I said this way back with Donner. I feel it's kind of disrespectful taking this Jewish creation and turning it into a Christ metaphor. Stick with the Moses metaphor. Moses did a lot of good. Rescued all the Hebrews from Egypt. Let them out of slavery. I think if you're inspiring people to get out of the slavery of war and tension and, and not being in unity, great, go with Moses. I feel it's kind of disrespectful. That's my point. And I'm just saying it's not well fleshed out. I'm not angry about it. I just think it's poorly done. I think it's done like a grade schooler. <laughs> the Matrix did it better. I mean, at least there you had a resurrection and a salvation. Here, yeah, he's going to take a pose a few times, but he's not Jesus. And at no point do I get 
how he is Jesus. I'm told he's going to save everyone, but, I mean, Jesus died for our sins. Superman, he's going to kill us. I mean, did you see this fight? He kills people. I mean, not just Zod. He causes wanton destruction. Zod is terrorizing his mom, and Clark barrels through, knocks him through a train, through some buildings. Let's say those were all deserted. It ends in a gas station where people are pumping up gas, and they all blow up. I feel bad for Pete Ross. You know, he's this fat ginger that (laughs) kind of torments Clark when he's a kid. Clark saves him, and Pete becomes kind of protective. He's in awe of this character. And what has Pete grown up to become? A manager at IHOP in Smallville. And Superman beats the hell out of IHOP. You know, we talked about Popeye's Chicken and all those product placements, Coca-Cola, Marlboro. Now we get IHOP and 7-Eleven just getting blown up. Does it do that much good for your business to see it blown up by Superman? Hey, Popeye's Chicken it was fine for, right? But what was flipping me out about Pete Ross is he was his African-American friend in Smallville. I don't know where he became a fat ginger IHOP manager. Well, he was white in the original comics. Yeah, this is where the product placement really comes. I mean, I thought Superman was going to take Zod down with a $5 foot long. I mean, it really was. <laughs> the, 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 the battle spews into Sears. It's a moment where I reflect how even small town, Smallville America has been co-opted by cooperations. There is no more mom and pop anymore. It is all franchises of businesses. No, you're right, Stuart. I was actually distracted by all the product placement. I I found it taking my eye away. All I could see are these well-framed business logos in the background as their buildings get blown up. I'm sure that the producers of this movie are happy to hear you say that, Jacob. (laughs) I don't want to go into an IHOP if it's going to blow up on me. (laughs) I've been into IHOP. They're three steps away from being blown up by the crazy patrons there. (laughs) Hey, it worked on me. I had Father's Day breakfast at IHOP. I love their lingonberry pancakes. I'm (laughs) telling you. Yeah, it really did get distracting, but I was just thinking about how in Superman 2, Clark goes, no, the people, and flies off to the Fortress of Solitude to take the damage away. Here, he's like barreling into downtown Smallville with Zod and does not seem to give a damn about the people. You're reading into this, though. We do not see any deaths directly related to anything that Superman does. I don't think we're meant to believe that that's what happens. I think that they wanted to hop up and give us crazy action at this point. This movie had been off and on, hot and cold, and now for the next 40 minutes, they are going to bombard us with the movie that people have come to expect from franchise blockbusters. A huge set piece, one of many. And I don't think that Superman killed anyone. I don't see it. Not explicitly. He's caused an explosion. He's reckless here. And I've written this off. This is not the Superman I know from the comics. This is a new Snyder, Goyer, Nolan joint (laughs) Superman. This is a younger brasher, more violent Superman for the 21st century. And I said early on in this review, I don't see a lot of Snyder here. This is when I see Snyder when we get into these fights. They're done like video games, the way Fiora moves. Like, if you've heard of the game Bayonetta, where you got this female fighter that kind of slides around as she does these punches. It's all very video game-like. How did this even translate? I was wondering, as you guys watch this in 3D, could you even see what was going on? Because it's hard enough to make out in 2D. There's no 3D. But I will say the 3D version was blurrier 
and I was able to see everything a lot clearer in 2D. And you mentioned the video game. It's not just a video game. It was like a bad video game. I used to love Street Fighter 2, but when it became Street Fighter 2 Hyper Up on Ritalin <laughs> Turbo version, that's what I felt I was watching. Yeah, I didn't like this action. You know, I want to see action in a Superman film. I think with Superman Returns, that's at least Arnie and I had a problem. Yeah, great. You have a lot of drama. Let's see some Superman stuff. And here we're getting the big violent action. It's it's just staged so poorly. And this I am throwing on Snyder. This is where I feel Snyder's aesthetic really hampers the film for me. It's not Snyder's aesthetic. It's Hollywood's aesthetic. Every time I go see one of these action movies, they all feel the same to me. I raised the white flag on this years ago. I mean, this is just what action is anymore. When you say video game, I think you're just talking about the fact that the characters move in this herky-jerky fashion that could only be replicated using computer technology. That we are essentially watching animation at this point and that these are not stunt people on wires. This is, yeah, a computer-generated image dancing around here i think the thing with snyder's style though is everything in his movies is so cgi'd up and he doesn't even bother trying to make it look real and i get that this is a comic book movie but i'm not watching a pixar film and it just gets to the point where i guess if nothing looks real everything looks real I don't know. This seemed like on par for what I would expect from a big CGI disaster porn film these days. It doesn't stick out to me as anything better or worse. I just stop projecting my hate onto Zack Snyder. I, you're hating on him more than I am. <laughs> well, I'm thinking more of like that tendril on the world devastator and some of the body movements. I'll agree with you, Jacob. The buildings that fall look incredibly realistic, but the people to me never once look or move like human beings. I don't love it. I haven't loved it for about five years, but it's the way things are going. I don't think it's any worse than anything else that I've seen this summer. I was just let down because one of the things I felt Superman 2 lacked was a dynamic fight between Zod and his peeps versus Superman. I felt it was kind of slowly paced. Now we have the technology to do it, and it's just done in such a way that I can't tell what's going on. There's motion lines, there's blur lines moving around, but I can't take any of this in. I can't enjoy any of this. I'm watching Arnie play a video game and that's kind of boring for me i'm pretty good at video games you might enjoy it but (laughs) i'm gonna split the difference between the two of you i think this is a kinetic zod superman fight one of many that we're gonna get of super on super fights but it is what donner lester would have given us in 82 if he could have i really believe that i like that I think when it goes overboard for me is when the world machine, the most unimaginatively named device on Krypton, comes down into the Indian Ocean because that's the exact opposite on the Earth from Metropolis to terraform us. And then I really do feel we're in the middle of some destruction porn Transformer 3 kind of disaster flick. I mean, they're going to blow up so many buildings. It's going to make 9-11 look like 7-11. This is where the film started to bother me. Smallville, I I was getting nervous. I wasn't liking all the destruction. This was over the top. And I mentioned Mark Wade, who wrote Superman Birthright, who they took a lot of this stuff from. Huge comic book writer, huge Superman fan. He's written Superman comics, obviously. You know, you say this is Transformers 3, Arnie. He said this was so gratuitous, Michael Bay would be ashamed of it. (laughs) 
<laughs> I can't tell the difference, uh, folks. I don't know anymore. Uh, you know, I, I've always been the one to be the holdout on this. That you guys have turned on this movie when I've seen it in lots of movies that you have jumped up and down and said are great, and I'm crazy for not getting into. I don't know what to say. It just is what it is. I don't love this ending, but I was ready for things to happen. The movie had been dragging. Now that we're into the action segment of it, I was ready for my pulse to quicken. I don't think that these are tremendous moments, partly because I'm only halfway rooted into these characters, but it works. It does the job it's supposed to. There are some incredible looking visuals. I mean, things blow up real good. I I don't know what else to say beyond that. They try. God knows poor Lawrence Fishburne is given some hammy bit with trying to save a co-worker out of rubble. He hasn't had much to do this entire movie. I'm thinking they're saving him for a future movie when Clark is more centrally rooted in the Daily Planet. But this is definitely not Lawrence Fishburne's finest hour here. Aren't you confused, though, when all of a sudden that balding co-worker and this girl Jenny, who I've never seen before, suddenly become main characters? <laughs> No, no. Steve is another character from the comics that works at the Daily Planet, was like an ex-jock and picks on Clark and Clark, you know, kind of goes along with it because that's his persona that he's weak. But then Superman always kind of showed him up in the old 60s comics. No idea who this guy was. I just thought for sure he was going to be the cowardly guy. And when this is it Jenny Olsen now, we never get a last name for her. Yeah, there's no Jimmy in this. No. Maybe he's gone off with Lana or Lana or whoever that was at Popeye's. Hey, the Chicago Sun-Times fired their entire photography staff and gave their reporters iPhones. You saw Lois had a nice <laughs> Nikon. They didn't need a Jimmy Olsen. I'm surprised they hired Clark at the end. They're taking on staff. Yeah, if we're going to go there, I was surprised that that is where he wound up. I thought we were done with that. I was enjoying the fact that they had bypassed the whole, I work in the environment with Lois and she doesn't know who I am. I thought it was great that Lois knew who he was, that she's a part of the team, that she represents the journalist side as they're fighting the terror together. Was all happy with that. I didn't need or want him to go back with her to that when this battle is over. They do something interesting here. Amid all of this explosions, at one point she's falling out of an aircraft. He saves her, and they land twirling and kissing. And I believe it's Jenny is the one that points out, they saved us. Not he saved us. Not Superman saved us. They saved us. Given that it's Goyer, and given that he's tried this trick before with Batman, with Dark Knight Rises, did you get the impression that he was trying to sell us on that anyone can be Superman when they step up to the plate. That Superman is a construct. Again, that whole idea that it's not about one guy saving the world, but it's about people being inspired to be the best they can be. I took it that way. I wanted that whole idea to be stronger. You know, Spider-Man 2, where the people on the subway turning against Doc Ock, and the Amazing Spider-Man, where all the construction workers line up the cranes so Spider-Man could swing to the building to get the lizard. Like, it was cheesy, but as inspiring, and I wanted that moment in this film. That's how I took the Lawrence Fishburne scene, where they're trying to save Jenny from the rubble. You know, we have the military, the military and Lois. They come in and they help save the day. They actually get rid of most of the Kryptonians. Why... Superman's on the other side of the Earth blowing up the unmanned world machine. But again, yeah, Superman's over in the Indian Ocean, and perhaps because it's photorealistic, all the CGI of these buildings falling. But when Jenny is standing there pointing and goes, he saved us, all I'm thinking is, how many dead are around you in those buildings? 
Oh, when you watch, because the way the world machine works, you know, it lifts things up and then smashes them down. You could see people in Metropolis getting lifted up with the cars. There were millions that died in this film. Yeah, there's high casualty rates. And you know what? I think you guys would be bitching if there was this kind of mass destruction and they G.I. Joe'd it and everyone jumped out with parachutes. (laughs) If you're going to have world-changing stakes where they're ripping into the soil and polluting the environment and tearing down buildings, then yeah, we need to understand that mass people are dying. He doesn't save everybody. That's not what this Superman's going to do. He's not going to rescue every kitten from the tree. If you jump into the Niagara Falls, chances are you're going to split. Hey, God help me for saying that Superman Returns did something better than Man of Steel. But at least in Superman Returns, when there's debris falling, Superman is stopping it from hitting civilians. Stuart, I get what you're saying. This is a modern take. He's not going to be able to save everyone. But he goes and he fights the machine that's not hurting anyone. I guess there's some people in the middle of the ocean. I guess there's some fishermen there. But (laughs) in Metropolis, millions are dying and it's up to the military and Lois to save. I accept that this is a different take. I'm going to judge it as a different take than what I've seen before, what I've read in the comics. I think for those listeners out there into the comic, into Superman being in this inspiring hero that will protect Earth, just be warned. This is a different Superman. This is not that Superman. This is one in a world where there will be casualties, where at the end of the day, he'll stop genocide, but there's still going to be millions of deaths. You can't have it both ways. You can't have have this mass destruction and not have casualties. You can either have accept that or he can go and spin the world back and everything's fine. You know what's funny, Stuart? I literally thought, oh, they're going to reverse the Earth in this movie. That's the only solution. There is so much damn destruction in this movie. I swore that they were going to reverse the Earth. I was convinced of it. Yeah, well, I just want to know if Superman's not going to help people when a world machine is killing them. What exactly did Jarrell mean when you can say you can save all of them? You can save all of them except for these thousands. Wait a minute. All right, let's be clear here. He did save them because if that machine had been allowed to continue its work, the entire atmosphere would have been unbreathable by every single human being and probably most animals on the planet. The whole ecosystem would have collapsed. By taking on that machine, he has saved humanity. What he didn't save is a portion of the population in Metropolis. And I accept the fact and I think that they are free by the fact that we can have casualties in this Superman world. It is acceptable that people die here because saving humanity is not the same thing as saving everyone from dying. We cannot eliminate death. This planet would not even be able to sustain if every human being lived perpetually. That just it, that can't work either. Stuart, you're sounding like a Kryptonian now. Well, re- <laughs> <laughs> I don't necessarily care that this movie killed thousands of people. I'm not standing on a moral high ground and saying movies can't kill. I love ID4 and it killed maybe a billion people. But the difference is those deaths were eventually avenged and the atrocity being committed was the deaths. And we even had scenes where everybody mourned somebody they love. Here, this movie kills thousands, maybe tens of thousands in a 9-11-esque way, but they never even do us the justice of giving us a sacrificial victim. There's no mourning. It's too easy. Well, one of the true striking differences, I will say, between Snyder and Nolan is that Nolan is all about ratcheting tension. And if you're not exactly mourning those characters that die, you feel their pain when they're caught in those circumstances, when human lives hang in the balance of the plots of these supervillains and superheroes. And here, 
those stories largely get dropped. I'll agree with you. This does not have that tension. It does not have that sense of tragedy. As dour as this movie can be, I never connect to it in that way. Again, going back to the editing of this film, you get this jump cut. I mean, after all this destruction, it just, boom, cut to Superman and Lois making out flying up to the sky like it never gives you a moment to linger and really take in what you've seen and i think that's part of mourning was seeing this devastation and being able to reflect on it this film's not going to give you time to do that no i think that they should have given us at least one sacrificial dead meat character to see die in this and then given superman one line about how he's upset with Zod about the people that were killed by this machine. Instead, it's all very nebulous. I think it's because they're trying to appeal to the youngest of children. It's PG-13, but they want this to be safe for a three-year-old and not scary. And the only person who dies is a pilot who says a good death is its own reward. Yeah, and there were three and four and five-year-olds in this theater. I don't know if this is the movie for them. But no, here's the thing. I get that. I guess I just wish the whole idea that Superman was going to inspire us to be something better. I wish there was more of those scenes like Perry going and rescuing people from the rubble. I wish we had more of those scenes reminiscent of 9-11 with the firemen and the police and just the ordinary citizens helping people. That would have driven the point home. Is he going to be able to save every human life? No, but he's going to make us better. We see this man flying in the sky trying to stop this giant robotic machine. We're going to be down here on the ground trying to save human lives. I wish that point was driven home better. I think it would have made this a stronger moment. I think that's what Perry's meant to represent. He is sort of the other father figure here. He kind of plays a role, sort of, kind of, maybe if you squint your eyes a little, like Russell Crowe <laughs> and Kevin Costner. He has a relationship with Lois in which he tells her the world's not ready for Superman. You know, he gives some of the same lip service. I think he is meant to be that guy. And I think with him not saving himself, but staying to help Jenny out of the rubble, I think that's what it's meant to inspire. I do think we're supposed to understand that this is how he inspires humanity to be better, that people step up and they become Superman, that Lois is Superman, too, when they come twirling down to the ground here at the climax. But Zod is still alive. We, we get one more fight in. Yeah, it starts on the ship. Zod spaceship jacked that ship that Kal-El flew into the Arctic. Yeah, I was confused by that. I'm like, where did this ship come from? I thought they were all blown up. But yeah, so this is the Fortress of Solitude he's flying in. Yes. yes. And... Kalel starts using his heat vision. I love the effect for the heat vision here. It's a complete interpretation I'd never seen before with the glowing orange eyes. I love it. And he says, if you destroy this ship, you destroy Krypton. And Kalel's like, ah, screw Krypton. They had their chance. And Space Jesus performs abortions in this film. <laughs> oh, come now. You guys are really laying it on here. I, I think that it wasn't easy for him to come to that term. I don't think that he was like, ah, whatever. I mean, he says Krypton had its chance and yes that was a weird line for me like ah screw it it gets back to what i thought crow was doing crow was allowing those people to die they had failed evolutionary speaking you have to let people die things have to die off the best to go on not everything gets saved i think it's a theme here krypton failed for whatever reasons it's isolation policy it's one child raised by an octopus in a water <laughs> tube you know birthing measures whatever it was that made them become so incestuous it led to their death rome collapsed 
and now a new civilization must emerge. He represents that. It's easy for him to do because he knows he's got the DNA to make that happen. I mean, he's the one that gets to live on. It's Zod that's doomed here. But with the abortions, as Jacob calls it, that means the DNA in the codex is useless, right? You need the fetuses on which to imprint. Uh, you could do some test too, baby. You get some scientist smart enough, you could take that DNA out and mix it in some goo and... Yeah, but Jarrell's dead. I don't think anybody on Earth <laughs> is going to be doing that. That Paul Giamatti-looking scientist isn't going to be able to do it. <laughs> well, that's what the purpose of Superman is, to inspire them so they eventually get there. To find a way to meld the Kryptonian and the Earth DNA. That is the future of Krypton. So, Jacob, I have to ask you, because I'm thinking about you during this final Kal-El Zod fight here. I mean, how did you take the fact that Kal-El breaks Zod's neck? Because you've been on this show. Oh, I know. last podcast, Superman doesn't kill. Super Baby can't kill. Superman takes a life intentionally. Yeah, he snaps Zod's neck. I mean, it was a shock. I honestly thought, hey, we're going with the Jesus metaphor. Maybe he'll, uh, like, cover Zod's eyes and get some stigmata, burn through his hands or something. Maybe gouge his eyes out so he can't burn up. Or maybe these humans could just do some limbo and go underneath the heat rays. Like, there seems like there are some other options, but you know what? Like I've said... I have accepted that this is a different Superman. This is a 21st century Superman that is still learning how to become this icon that we've known for 75 years. And it's kind of like with Burton's Batman when he's punching Joker off the building or sticking dynamite in one of the Penguin's henchmen's pants and smiling as he blows up. I've accepted at this point that this is a different take. I don't like it. This isn't the Superman that I've known from the comics, but as this film has progressed, as we've seen basically atom bombs go off over and over in Metropolis as these two fight, I mean, they tear up the city. I kind of admire that, hey, if we're going to do a 21st century take, if we're going to do, again, that Nolan take, what would these beings be like in the real world? It would be horrific if they fought. They would literally destroy Metropolises on Earth if they got into a fight and it bugged me that he snapped the neck i do like that he feels remorse for it he drops to his knees and he's sad that that's what it had to come to i know this scene has bothered a lot of the comic book fans and i totally get it i have accepted that this is not the comic book superman i'm judging this film as what i have seen on screen presented to me as the case for this character and i don't see it that out of character for what has been presented to me you would have to take the idea that every situation can have a non-lethal outcome, that there was a way of finishing this fight with both of them living. I mean, at the start of this, Zod says something to the effect of this ends with one of us dead. And I feel like, okay, you have to accept that. There was not going to be any kind of sidestepping of that. Superman was going to have to make his first kill. I think that that's what this moment is supposed to represent. I didn't see that he had killed anyone before this. This was him realizing this is part of his journey. This is what he's going to have to do. That there's ugliness. That leading people isn't all about flowery speeches and high ideals. Sometimes it's about dirty work. I think that's a pragmatic way of thinking about leadership. Maybe you don't like it. My chances are that you aren't fit for leadership then. That someone has to die. I just feel like that's a natural thing. I'm just grateful that 
that when he falls to his knees and roars, he doesn't look up to the heavens. I hate that moment. They always do this. You're okay with all the Jesus imagery, but you can't have that no moment. You can't have that. You can't. That is absolutely right. I was thinking about you when he shouted, and I wondered if that was enough, if that shout was enough to enrage you, or if he had to actually look up at God to do it. But does he even save those four humans that were in the corner? Because we never see them again. Were they killed by Zod's I-beams and that's when he breaks the neck? Or did he break the neck to save them and then we just never even get a scene of them rushing off? I took it as he saved them. I think there's problems with editing in this film. A lot of quick cuts. Or maybe it's just cut scenes. Who knows what we'll see on the Blu-ray DVD. But he had to have saved them. I mean, he can't have them dead and then he breaks his neck. He would just keep punching them in my eyes. No, yeah, no. The reason that he had to die was to save that family. It wouldn't make sense if they were already dead. That was the dilemma. That was the ethical choice that was being put forward to him. And I give Snyder, you've given them some shit, but I give Snyder some props for going this route. I feel like if J.J. Abrams or Joss Whedon had made this movie, Superman would have made Zod kneel before him. You know, they would have said the line and been like, hee that They had done a role reversal of the previous movie. They didn't go for clever, and they didn't go with what they had done before. They let you know the tone of this new world. I think it's the right one. And with that, a new status quo is established, and Superman is now a force, and he's his own power. The government tries to monitor him, and he says, you're not going to do that. I'm going to help you, but on my terms. Yeah, I wonder how this scene will play in 10 years or 20 years. I don't know. Maybe drones will be around even more than maybe they'll be hovering above over every house. But having this drone drop out of the sky feels like a very relevant commentary for today's politics. Yeah, good luck with that, Soups. Yeah, don't use any cell phones. <laughs> don't update your Facebook status. Don't use Google. <laughs> no credit cards. <laughs> I, I've got to wonder, though, is he just living in Metropolis? The fortress, the spaceship is destroyed. That's gone. He doesn't have his Jor-El House of L USB key anymore. That, that went into the negative zone when they got rid of the world builder. It really is a mystery where he's staying at this point. I guess he's just renting an apartment. Maybe he's living in one of the caved out <laughs> buildings after that fight in Metropolis. Maybe he's commuting from Smallville. He does have the ability to fly. But can the movie fly with us? Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Man of Steel? Jacob. I've said I was nervous going into this one. It was Snyder. I don't have a good record with him. But you know what? I really enjoyed the first two thirds of this film. I, there's something about Superman and, you know, these huge epics that I seem to enjoy. I love that about the Donner one. I love this whole journey he goes on during the first two acts of this film coming to terms with his powers and his relationship with Ma and Pa Kent and coming out about his powers and I really enjoyed all that. Maybe I'm just getting old when I get to the third act here and we get to all this fighting and punching. It just goes on too long for me. The destruction is too much. Does this make it or not recommend? No. I'm going to recommend Man of Steel. It's not the strongest entry. It's not as strong as I think it could have been, but it's a good film. It got the drama at the beginning, the first couple of acts. It gets you into the action at the end. You know, if you've been waiting to see Superman punch a lot of things, this is the film for you. I will warn you, though, if you're a huge fan of the comic book take, this one will be challenging. You have to accept this film on its own terms. This is a 21st century Superman, not even a Superman, a man of steel. And the take they go with it is very different, I feel. But 
I am willing to accept it. I'm glad to see that there is a second Zack Snyder film that I kind of like. I, I haven't said what the other one is. We know it's not Dawn of the Dead, but I'm glad it's not all negative with Zack Snyder. I, I really felt he was non-entity here, and I feel the story's pretty good here. There's a lot of mumbo-jumbo, the codex and that kind of stuff, but I feel that's kind of par. But I don't know if this is a superhero movie, but this, I think, is a pretty good science fiction movie, and I enjoyed it on those terms. Recommend. Stewart. Man, I feel like you guys would rather jump off a cliff than give Zack Snyder a compliment here. He has succeeded. Zack Snyder has hey, succeeded. No, no. Outside with Stuart, your compliment to Zack Snyder was he was not an entity. <laughs> I said, here is a second Zack Snyder film that I can kind of enjoy. Because he wasn't part of it. <laughs> I didn't want to kill him afterwards. You know, let's give the man his due. He has successfully created a universe outside of Donniverse. No one has been able to do that yet with Superman. That is a feat. It, whether it is working for you or not, it is a feat, and it is, I think, largely successful. It definitely has moments where I'm bored and wish it wasn't dwelling on the things. You know, the burden of the origin story, the fact that I have seen this story before because I have a version of it that I hold closer to my heart. I can imagine that some people are going to see this and say this is easily the best Superman movie, and I get where they're coming from. I wouldn't go that far because I do think that they've lost that heart component that sort of makes those first two Donner ones more special to me. I get that those Donner ones are corny to younger people, but I still think that a little bit of corny goes a long way here. And this movie could use some lightness. It is a little too dour. It is a little too overlong. But I think that it is easily the most successful and cohesive Superman vision we've gotten since the first two Superman Donner movies. And yeah, I largely enjoy it. I think that this is a good first entry. I think they're set up for an even better sequel. This could be like Superman 2, where I enjoy the next one even more here. I feel like they're set up to do great things. Potential very high in this universe. Higher than the actual finished product. But uh, yeah, a solid recommend for me. A solid recommend by saying it's the best Superman film other than the two good ones. <laughs> I think you were damning with faint praise as well a little bit, Stuart. No, oh, well, then I'll say it again. I think that this is almost as good as Donner's movies. It just lacks his heart. And it's a little uneven. I gotta say, this is a dumb movie. This is a joyless movie. I like superhero movies with a little bit of fun, a little bit of humor. This has very little humor. This has very little fun except for video game destruction porn. I find that they looked at what Nolan did with Batman and like, yes, let's make something that dark and unhappy. And to me, that's not Superman. And yeah, this script was written by somebody who used words they don't know like internal hemorrhaging rss feed and codex but my question coming into this was could Zack snyder make a second good film because i only think he made one and that was dawn of the dead and truthfully i haven't revisited 300 because i might think 300's passable but yes the answer is yes this is a second good Zack snyder film it's not a great Zack snyder film it is good it is disjointed it is made for people who have adhd and maybe skip their ritalin for a day it is not made for me i don't like the tenor of the action i don't like the camera that feels like it's being filmed by somebody suffering from ms I don't like the visual style. I don't like the attempt at religious allegory that does not pay out. But you are recommending this, right? 
but I am recommending this film. Uh, okay, because I'm not hearing that. <laughs> Please elaborate. I think this film does a lot of things right. And I think on my second viewing, I was able to go with them a bit more. Knowing what this film has to offer, I was able to go with the disjointed storytelling more. I think this movie is full of strong performances from top to bottom. We've already said that Michael Shannon, who apparently I've seen naked and didn't even know... <laughs> I think Henry Cavell pulls off Superman tremendously. I think he really has a great performance to give. I think Amy Adams does a pretty good Lois Lane. I don't quite get the attraction there other than he keeps saving her life. But okay, I think Russell Crowe and Kevin Costner, the two Robin Hoods together at last, both turn in really strong performances here where I buy where they're both coming from. Diane Lane, I don't know what happened to you. I'm hoping that was the makeup department just aging you. But you did good as far as performance, too. So all the mains on screen, even Lawrence Fishburne, not phoning it in. Good for you. So... The performances matter so much to draw me into this world. And then, yes, that score, that score that I can't get out of my head since the first time I saw this movie four days ago. Hans Zimmer, I'm not generally a fan, but this may be your best work, too. You and Snyder did a great job here. I think that there are pieces here that make this a good Superman movie. The problem is I'm recommending it like I'm recommending Green Lantern and like I'm recommending Amazing Spider-Man. They're diversions of the time, but I don't champion these films. I don't wave a flag for these films. I don't go out and get tattooed for these films. They're okay. They're fun enough. I say, yeah, you want an evening out? Go see it. I recommend it. But you said, Stuart, you think this could have a better sequel. My fear is where is the sequel going to go? And with the amount of box office success this has already had, it's just going to reinforce Snyder to be more Snyder. I mean, I feel <laughs> like I'm looking forward to Man of Steel 2 the way I'm looking forward to Amazing Spider-Man 2. Yeah, they're going to do it. <laughs> Okay, um, I'll be there. I want to make it clear, since we are making comparatives here, I think this is a much finer film than Amazing Spider-Man. That movie, completely drab. I am dreading having to go back yeah. and watch that next summer. I have no love or passion for this. There are things that I was genuinely impressed with. There are questions that remain. There is somewhere to go here. And I feel like they have not completely filled the suit, but they have created a vision I want to follow. And I don't want to follow the new Spider-Man, but this one, I do. And how you say this is in the same boat as Green Lantern, I'll never know. Uh, 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 we're not even talking about that. Hey, anymore. I recommended Green Lantern. <laughs> I, I know. know. <laughs> you have to live with that the rest of your life. <laughs> I like the director's cut even more than theatrical. <laughs> never going to see it. <laughs> but to me, this film, when it gets to the action, it's just another Transformers film. It is just another one of these mindless destruction films where I'm not invested enough in the characters to really feel steeped in the emotion. I'm recommending it, but it's a flawed film. That said, in my mind, it's the third best Superman film. I mean, this has been a long, hard retrospective, guys. <laughs> hey, I even like Superman 3, but I will say, yes, this is the third best one. Yeah, I mean, it's very much like Batman for me. I do feel like there were two in the beginning that I liked, 
okay, this is not Batman Begins or Dark Knight, but it's probably about as good as Dark Knight Rises. It's actually better than that. They got somewhere to go here, and whoever carries it on, I'm cool with it. I feel like, yeah, see Superman, see Superman 2, and I have gone back and watched that Donner cut. I'm going to say that's the one to see. I actually think that if I'm going to rank them, I would say Superman 2 Donner cut is my very favorite quickly followed by Superman. And then this one is not so far behind. There's a lot about this new movie that improves upon what Donner does, but it's got to make up a lot more in the charm. I think that that's the one area I'd like to see it. The rest of it, no. Superman 3 and 4, god-awful. Supergirl is good comedy, terrible film. Steel, I just don't even understand how that's a Superman movie. <laughs> the rest of it is garbage, but it's so nice to finally be in, ending one of these franchises with me positively encouraged by where the project is headed. Hey, three green arrows, no less. Yeah, too often we don't do this. I'm happy that we did this series, if only for three films. And for me, if I'm ranking them, I disagree with you on the Donner cut. I just think it's an incomplete cut. It is a compromised cut, and I just didn't think it cohered very well. And especially when you have the first movie sharing the same ending, it just didn't work for me. If I'm to rank them, though, it would be Superman 2, the Lester cut, closely followed by Superman 1, then Man of Steel. I know I'm coming off like a sourpuss here. I just don't think that you guys saw some of its flaws. I really figured I'd be the only recommend on this podcast because I'm seeing this and I'm like, Stuart's railed against this kind of Transformer shaky cam before. I guess you're just numbed to it now is what's happened because you would not have let this pass two years ago. <laughs> and Arnie, th this is passing for me because of the strength of the first two acts. I didn't enjoy the last act. I didn't enjoy all the fights. It's a, it had strong first two acts for me. But then I'd put after Man of Steel, it's a whole bunch of not recommends. If you're going to make me grade the chaff, I guess Superman 3, Superman 4, Steel, Superman Returns, Supergirl? <laughs> oh, so, you know what? Superman Returns, I forgot about that one. You can give that one a pass. <laughs> it was so memorable, I didn't even <laughs> remember it. It was last week. And you recommended it. I did, and I, and I meant that. I, I had forgotten about it. It's somewhere in between... Man of Steel and Superman 3. I feel like if you loved those first two Donner movies, it's a nice love letter to it. It's not a great standalone adventure. And I think Man of Steel makes it forgettable. <laughs> uh, you know, I forgot it. <laughs> there I go. And I think if it, it's like if you loved your wife, Superman Returns is like digging her out of the grave <laughs> and f***ing her corpse. Wow. <laughs> That is really not how I see it, or, and I feel like I need to go cleanse now. <laughs> and I guess not only does my Superman 3 recommend stand out here, I go with the original Superman as my favorite. Yes, it's slow-paced and not a whole lot of conflict going on there, but I love the journey in that film. It's the strongest to me as a comic book origin about a superhero. It stands up there. still number two after Dark Knight for me. And then I go with Superman 2. You know, again, that whole Donner cut versus the theatrical cut, I say watch them both. And then Man of Steel, I, it, again, Arnie, I see there's flaws here. They're not enough, though, to make this a not recommend. Yes, this movie has flaws. We spent a few hours discussing them, it, but it's still a recommend. Then I go to Superman 3 after that. Uh, I don't know. Can we all agree that Superman 4 is the absolute pits? Oh, yeah, I would go with, I would go with Steel before that one. I would go with oh, Mole yeah. before that one. Supergirl, you know, I, I'd probably it, go with yes. Supergirl and then Superman Returns, Steel, Mole and then, yeah, Superman 4.
I forgot to rank Mole Men because it's just such an anomaly, yes. but I'd put it above Superman Returns just because it's an anomaly that's interesting. Oh, you really hate that film. Uh, <laughs> that is not the worst one, but we've discussed it. All right. Well, with this the, being the case, though, unlike so many reboots, Friday the 13th and Green Lantern, where we're already talking about the sequel, in this case, I feel Superman's destiny is written. Goyer has said this is the first part of a trilogy, but the unlike Batman, it's not a trilogy of Superman movies. It's Man of Steel, Man of Steel 2, and Justice League. Goyer is contracted for those three films, and they're fast-tracking Man of Steel 2 for 2015, as if that is a, a crowded enough year. Yeah, I know they, they do a lot of hype about the sequel during the opening weekend of the first film. You've seen that with a lot of the horror movies you guys have done, just to try to get the hype going. They were saying this has been fast-tracked for a sequel before the film came out. I guess they were pretty sure of themselves. Wow, that is quick. They have reason to feel confident here. This is clearly something that can be built upon. And I think that the box office already says that people want more of this. I do want a sequel to Man of Steel. I don't want Justice League. I don't see it. I don't see how this Superman is going to play with Ryan Reynolds and Wonder Woman and The Flash and Joseph Gordon-Levitt or whoever else they stick in a Batman outfit. That doesn't work to me at all. Marvel did it smartly. They gradually worked towards it. And each movie felt like a link on the chain. Here, it just feels like, hey, we finally have a hit. Let's try and franchise it with all these other characters. Not curious. I just, I don't want it. I'm curious how they'll do it, because now that this has made so much money, and I think they're committed to that path, they're ready to go head-to-head with Man of Steel 2 versus Avengers 2. That's balls. And Star Wars 7. I mean, 2015, the year now playing explodes. <laughs> Warner Brothers is going about it very differently. I, I don't, we didn't mention it, but no after credit scene here. Everyone in the theater stuck around being conditioned by those Marvel films. <laughs> But nothing, no, no sneak peek here. Yeah, I think they were waiting for Nick Fury to show up. <laughs> or at least Lex. Uh, yeah, I was waiting for Lex. That's got to be the plot of Man of Steel, too, right? you got to introduce that character. It's a shocker not to have him here. They do show Lex corpse, though. If you see some of the buildings in the background in these Metropolis scenes, some of the oil tankers, they do say Lex Corp. They've planted the seed there. I hate to say it, but here's what I honestly believe Man of Steel 2 will do, is we're going to up the heroes and up the villains. I bet there's two villains. I bet there's Lex and either Brainiac or something, and Lex will be the super villain against the Justice League. Yeah, and now that you've said it, they've obviously got to build towards that, too, and Lex would be the one to build the Hall of Doom or whatever that is. What was that thing? It was always in the swamp. I just remember Super Friends. Legion of Doom? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was cool. Hope I see that next movie. I hope they have the Wonder Twins. <laughs> and the monkey. <laughs> Gleek? But with this kind of a timeline, my guess is we're going to hear of another DC hero for 2016 and what, Justice League 2017 or 2018, and they're doing the Iron Man, right? The only difference is there's no Hulk this year, and will it be Ryan Reynolds or will it be somebody else? Who knows? It won't be Ryan Reynolds. That is a failure. There will neither be a Green Lantern 2 nor him in green again, and I'm more than cool with that. I don't want it. They don't need it. It won't fit. That vision won't fit with what they've done here. It's tonally off. 
Well, I'm pretty convinced that they will go through with this one. I'm usually the skeptic when people come on our Facebook page and go, oh, look, they've already said they're going to make another Texas Chainsaw. I'm like, yeah, they always say that. But this one feels different to me. This one feels franchisable. I mean, I think it's just the money is talking. Yeah, no, I'm not saying they won't make Justice League. I'm saying I don't want to see it. And I'm saying when they do make Justice League, it will probably be Black Green Lantern or a different Green Lantern. It won't be that thing that I watched two summers ago. <laughs> well, what do you want to watch? I don't know if it's a matter of what you want to watch, but what will we be watching? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's more accurate. I agree, because there is more comic books in my future, although maybe one's more in my style. We're stepping away from superheroes, and our next series, we've already announced it on Facebook, are Men of Steel, Assassins. We're calling it DC Hitmen, and it's every DC comic property that's ever featured a killer. Starting with Tom Hanks? Vigo Mortensen? I mean, wow, these aren't people I think of as necessarily killers. <laughs> yeah, it is a bunch of DC graphic novels. We will discuss it. But our next series is actually leading up to another theatrical release, Stuart. And we, we're going to the theaters a lot. But Red 2 comes out in July around the time of San Diego Comic-Con. And so we're going to be watching a bunch of movies about hitmen based on DC Comics, starting with Road to Perdition, the Tom Hanks movie from 2002, Prohibition era, then A History of Violence, David Cronenberg finally coming to now playing. I'm always looking forward to talking about David Cronenberg. And yeah, I've seen that one. I want to go back. And then remember, remember the 5th of November with V for Vendetta? Yeah, that's definitely one that's got a lot to talk about. Alan Moore. One I know nothing about, The Losers. Hopefully it doesn't live up to its name. We'll see. And then finally, Bruce Willis and Morgan Freeman go old school in Red and Red 2. Bruce Willis, his third retrospective this year. I know, we went so many years and didn't do a single Willis film, and now three theatrical releases in one year. And they're confident in Red 2. It seems they moved the date up. Originally, we were going to tie in to its theatrical release in August. Well, they're so confident in it, they're actually putting it out, as you said, in July. We're going to miss the opening. It's going to be a couple weeks. We're not going to exactly tie in. But it's also because we're going to delay this Hitman for one week in the middle of July so that we can cover Pacific Rim. Have you guys seen this trailer? It's crazy. Yeah, I saw it at Man of Steel. I finally saw the trailer for this. You mean Robot Jocks 2? Yeah, <laughs> I just think maybe. <laughs> Last year it was Battleship. This year it's Rock'em Sock'em Robots versus Godzilla, I think. It's uh, the monster movie to end all monster movies. I don't know what I'm going to think about it. I know with Guillermo del Toro directing it, it's going to be a vision. Yeah, I'm looking forward to anything Guillermo does, so I am very much in favor of that. We've got a lot of theatrical releases coming up this summer. we got on the main feed, Pacific Rim. Then we're going to be following up our other retrospective series. We're going to be doing another X-Men film with The Wolverine. We won't be doing that weekend of release either because I'll be out of the country, but we'll be doing it in August as well as Kick-Ass 2. And then into late summer, early fall, we went six years without Bruce Willis. We also have gone six years without Vin Diesel. So we're going to do the Riddick movies. I know that's a big one for you, Arnie. But yeah, Pitch Black, Chronicles of Riddick, and this new thing. that I can't believe that he got another one. Vin Diesel's a funny one. He never wanted to make sequels. And now all of a sudden, Riddick, Triple X3, Fast and the Furious, he always comes back, Vin Diesel. And I guess... He's finally come to now playing. Is there a pacifier 2 coming out? <laughs> God help us if it does, because <laughs> Arnie will make me see it. 
on the other hand, you say triple X three, put that on the schedule. We've gone seven <laughs> years without Ice Cube. Yes, our fans have been so many Ice Cube requests on the Facebook feed. <laughs> And then as we get into late September, early October, when I start singing my Halloween song, it's time for some horror films. So we're going to be doing Maniac. I just saw this in the recent Fangoria, Elijah Wood in a remake of the 80s slasher film Maniac. I'm crazy interested in this one because it's told in first person. I don't even know how Elijah Wood is in this unless he looks in a lot of mirrors because it's all seen (laughs) through the killer's eyes and the whole movie is is following him victims and skinning him. It'll be crazy. We've never seen a slasher quite like this. And I know that the original is a beloved cult item as well. I haven't seen either. But yeah, I think that that will be a great way to get into thinking about horror as we move into Stephen King. Our big retrospective that we almost did this spring until they moved Carrie's release date. Well, we're getting it to it this October with the four Carrie films, starting with Brian De Palma's vision, ending with Chloe Moretz covered in pig's blood. Hey, spoiler alert! Oh, please, the trailer <laughs> spoiled that. Yes, Carrie kicks off a massive Stephen King retrospective that we will be doing for years. Yeah, I don't know if we'll ever finish. I mean, Marvel was one thing, but this is close to 70 movies more. I I lose count. There's some debatable choices in there. We'll have to see as we go through the movie. But he's written a lot and had been adapted a lot, probably more than any other author on the planet. We are doing these not in the orders that the movies were made, but actually in the order that King wrote the properties. And we're doing one more theatrical release this Friday, guys. If you haven't donated to Support Now Playing as part of our spring donation drive, TikTok time is running out because our donation drive ends on June 30th, but... Next week, donors of any level, silver or gold, get to hear a review of World War Z. It opens this Friday, and we are going to race to record it and get it out to the donors. It is the end of our zombie series where we did Evil Dead and 28 Days Later, 28 Weeks Later, and Return of the Living Dead. Finally wrapping it all up with World War Z. A $10 or more donation, you get our... Evil Dead series and the World War Z podcast and all the details are at nowplayingpodcast.com if you click the banner at the top but that's another trailer that I just keep seeing and I think that we are going to have another great conversation on that one yeah really looking forward to World War Z love the book and you'll hear my thoughts to tide you over coming out this Friday because we don't have a show to give you is the books and nachos on the World War Z written by Max Brooks It's a brilliant, I'll go ahead and spoil it, it's a high recommend for the book, and I'll give you my thoughts on it then until we can get a chance to discuss the movie. And if you can donate $25 or more, I'm on the record. I think our 28 Days Later podcast is the best podcast we've ever done. I think it's just one of the best conversations we've ever had. So you can check that out by being a donor, but there's only two weeks left to donate for our spring donation series, then these go in the vault with Alien and all those other podcasts. We've never re-released any of them. So if you're waiting for World War Z and think you might see it in July, donate before then and you can just download the podcast and hold on to it till you've seen the movie. So we're going to be back in theaters next week, you, me, and Jacob. So I'm looking forward to talking to you guys then. And then we'll be back on Tuesday with Road to Perdition. So until then, up, up, and away! Here 
There's only one way this ends, Cal. Either you die, or I do. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's DC Movie Universe Retrospective Series. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Stay down! I wanted it, you'd be dead already. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. Can you imagine how people on this planet would react if they knew there was someone like this out there? And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss the DC movies with other listeners. I love it. I love bringing people together. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other comic book films, such as Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, The Avengers, X-Men, The Punisher, and Fantastic Four. I can't wait to show you my toys. You can also listen to our reviews of other movie series, including The Fast and the Furious, Mission Impossible, Star Trek, Terminator, Predator, and many more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at NowPlayingPodcast.com. The world's too big, Mom. Then make it small. If you want even more Now Playing reviews, place your order now for the first Now Playing book, Underrated Movies We Recommend. Get reviews of 125 films our hosts love. Not sold anywhere commercially in the world, even Black Market. You can order the book by clicking the banner at the top of our homepage. This may be the only thing I do at the matters. I know you're trying to find out where I hang my cage. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. Support from listeners like you. Help keep Now Playing operating. It'd be a huge burden for anyone to bear. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Thank you. For what? For believing in me. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcasts by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available on our homepage. <laughs> nice suit, son. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. That's how it starts. The fever. The rage. The turns, good man. Cruel. Now playing credit narration by Brock. Sorry, the voices. I'm kidding. That's not what they really said. Now playing is not affiliated with DC Comics or Warner Brothers Pictures. DC Comics and all that the DC Universe contains are copyright and trademark Warner Brothers Entertainment, and no infringement is intended. I've seen it, Mr. Wayne. He thinks he's above the law. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Today is a day for truth. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Next time they shine your light in the sky, don't go to it. The bat is dead. Bury it. What have you done? Henry Cavill. 
Amy Adams. Cavell. Cavell? Okay. Yeah. It's not like Cowbell. It's Cavill? Cavell? It's like, it's like Devil. Devil? Cavell? Yeah. Henry Cavill. Henry Cavell. I did go to a Father's Day matinee full of kids that kept saying, I need to use the bathroom in Superman capes. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I honestly thought that was non, and I've learned from our listeners, N-O-N, non, not nom, not nom, 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 nom. <laughs> Every time you say non, I think Indian bread, but okay, whatever. <laughs> and <laughs> Michael Shannon, who apparently I've seen naked and didn't even know. <laughs> Killer Joe, it was a great play and a good movie, too, I recommend. And apparently, I what I remember of that? I recommend it to his girlfriend. Congratulations, ma'am. You are well blessed. (laughs) (laughs) I think Henry Cavill. I think Henry Cavill. Cavill. Listen, I don't care that thousands of people are dead. Independence Day. Thousands and thousands, probably millions and maybe even a billion people died. One of my favorite movies. But What? Oh, you didn't know this? He loves ID4. Loves what? it. Wait, I hate Zack Snyder. I love ID4. Oh, my head is spinning. Okay. <laughs> I thought this was common knowledge. I knew he kind of liked it. No, I just no. thought he liked the White House this blowing is, no, this is I mean, one everyone of his liked favorites. that scene. <laughs> oh, my it. God. Well, that is to be settled at a later date. Are are we doing a uh, retrospective? Yeah, we could we could go into White House Down. Isn't the same yeah. director? Yes, no, it is. No. Emmerich says he wants to do ID forever. I mean, oh, I think geez. they are talking about that. I don't want to do 2012. That ruined my birthday when I saw it. <laughs> was your birthday in 2012? No, I went and saw that because it was the only thing playing. And I'm like, oh, I wish I didn't see that. That was awful. I knew it was going to be bad, but it was worse than I thought. You don't have to be a Mayan to predict that was going to stay. I saw Creature on my birthday last year. We were the only ones in the theater. <laughs> It was terrible. (laughs) It was opening weekend. And closing weekend. (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs)